everyone, and welcome to another exciting episode of Directors Club. I am your host, Jim Laskowski. And recently for the 1992 retrospective episode, I had the immense joy of going back to revisit a film called A Midnight Clear. And one of my film critic friends and guests for that episode said, I think this might be Keith Gordon's best work. And, well, I honestly think he's made consistently great work ever since his directorial debut, and he happens to be one of my favorite returning guests, back for a yearly tradition that I always look forward to. He remains one of my favorite filmmakers, actors, cinephiles, an all-around terrific guy and conversationalist that I'm so glad I had the pleasure of connecting with several years ago. I feel blessed, grateful. Welcome back, the one and only Keith Gordon. Wow, um, that was really nice, and I'm really happy to be here. I, I love doing these with you. I, I really enjoy it. And look, I, you know, I enjoy talking to you, not on podcasts. I, I, you, know, you and I have a lot of things that we share and comment about the kinds of films that we love. And even when we are different, I always find the conversations really interesting and that they sort of open my brain up. So I'm, I'm happy to do it for an audience, but I'm always happy to talk to you just to talk to you. So I'm, I'm really glad to be here. I feel exactly the same way. And again, you know, if I could go back in time and, well, it would be, it would be awkward for my younger, maybe 10-year-old self to encounter the uh, 40-something-year-old version of me. But I would love to tell my 10-year-old self, hey, you know, um, you're going to be having conversations with that, uh, with that great actor from Christine someday. Because <laughs> uh, again, we were just talking about I was you know off mic about uh, John Carpenter and the uh, the fact that uh, the music box recently showed a seventy millimeter print of Starman. But uh, no, Christine was one of those first movies, probably one of the first horror movies I saw as a kid, and just instantly fell for it. And I've probably told you this before, but my dad was kind enough to edit out all the swear words so I could watch it. Oh, I don't <laughs> did tell me that. That's really wow. Yeah, <laughs> he, that, he wanted me that, to see it. That was a large job. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm pretty sure, yeah, the Buddy Repperton stuff was probably completely cut out. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> oh, yeah, but, uh, you, you know, and really quickly, this this could just be, uh, you know, because as everybody knows, we're going to talk about uh, underrated films from, from a particular decade, but um, I, had an, I had a recent experience going back to seeing... Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me on the big screen, which yeah. I hadn't seen. Obviously, again, 1992 retrospective choice. Uh, and Cheryl Lee's performance in that should have won every award imaginable. And I don't know why I didn't absolutely love it the first time I saw it, because I am a David Lynch freak. Um, and I'm just curious if you had any memories or stories of working with Cheryl Lee, because I... I have gone on record in saying you've done one of the better adaptations of Vonnegut I've ever seen with Mother Night. And really, uh, I just, I am so floored by what Cheryl Lee does in, in Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me and seeing that on the big screen again sort of cemented that for me and just think she's phenomenal. And she's great in Mother Night too. Well, you know, the truth is she's a monster. She's just a horrible human being. Who <laughs> uses those. No, she is. She's really one of the sweetest people I've ever met in my life. I'm sure. Um, she's, you know, a, a wonderful, wonderful actress. And, and I do think, a, you know, a kind of criminally under underappreciated actress. I think she has – I've worked with a few people like that. You know, uh, you know Billy Crudup. I mean, he, oh, it's yeah. getting better for him as he's gotten older. But I, I've worked with a few of these people who are physically gorgeous. So, like, everybody assumes – 
that they're, you know, that their talent is that they're great looking. And it's like, no, they're really great actors who just happen to be great looking. And I, I do think Cheryl is a, is a brilliant actress. And I, and I completely agree with you about fire walk with me. And, you know, she's very brave and very bold and very, but fun to work with. I mean, she's really, you know, inventive and, uh, I haven't talked to her in a while, but we stayed friends after the film. I really, you know, really dug her. I'm trying to think of this, like some great anecdote, but it wasn't, you know, it, she's actually pretty quiet and focused on the work. Um, and you know, it worked really hard. She went out and found this amazing tutor to help her work on the German mm. accent and very, very, very specific. Like I remember that about her. She was, she wanted to be very specific about what part of Germany the accent was from and what, you know, it, she was just, just very dedicated and yet lovely and happy and kind to the crew and, you know, we were all sort of in love with her. You know, I mean, she was just like one of those people that you were, you were really happy on the day she was working. There's always people like that on a movie where it's like, oh, they're here today. That's so good. <laughs> and she was definitely one of those people. Um, and it was a super hard role. I mean, in Mother Night, and, yeah. and once again, it, you know, Nick got Nick Nolte got all the attention because he had the really showy role, and it was also a super hard role. But but, you know, Cheryl was essentially playing two different characters mm -hmm. and yet two different characters who had to be alike enough that you could that one of the characters could convince somebody deeply in love with her that she was the other character, um, which is really subtle because, you know, it's like how far do you push it? How? And she was just great with it, um, you know, and she could make these tiny little adjustments and, you know, I, I could say whatever, five percent more Helga or what, and she would just do it. And. No, I, I love her, and I'm I'm really sorry that she hasn't gotten more just acclaim as a great actress and more work as a great actress. Agreed. Because, yeah. You know, I mean, maybe as she gets older, she will too. I mean, certainly like with Billy, with Billy Crudup when we did Waking the Dead, he was still struggling against the you know, you know, hot young leading man thing. And now as the years have gone by, he's getting to play more and more consistently, more and more interesting character roles. And mm -hmm. I think Cheryl is very much a character actress in a leading woman's body. Um, you know, I think she's really somebody that should be playing all sorts of roles. And I, I think she got ghettoized by the fact that she was blonde and beautiful. And, you know, so people were like, oh, well, we'll give her like the girlfriend parts. And she actually did a remarkable job. If you look at the body of her work of doing a lot of things that weren't that, even if it meant taking films that were more you know, off the, off the radar or smaller things or whatever, she really kind of stuck true to just trying to do really good work on interesting projects instead of capitalizing on, Oh, can I get to be a star? Um, but yeah, but I feel like I haven't seen her anything in a little while, which is, I'm realizing is pretty sad. Cause yeah, I guess it was probably just the last season of, uh, twin peaks, the return where she showed up and had a very memorable final moment of that season. True. But I don't <laughs> know what she was doing around that. I don't know yeah. if it took, Lynch bringing her back. I mean, I'd have to go look it up, but you know, I don't even know if she was like if she's like just gave up on the whole thing. I mean, at a certain point, I'm sure people feel like, oh, screw it. You know, I've worked hard enough at this long enough that if people aren't going to offer me the, the the stuff I deserve to do, why would I keep doing it? Yeah, and I also just mentioned that too because I wanted to sort of uh, incept this into people's brains to track down Mother Night because it's just uh, again, it's such just one of the better adaptations of Vonnegut that I've ever seen. And that's hard to pull off to see, you know, his, his writing is very tricky 
and a lot of people have attempted to do that, even with uh, you know a pretty decent Slaughterhouse Five. But yes, I, I actually really like Slaughterhouse Five, and I think Kurt was really happy with it too. I, that, that was one that I think captured a lot of what he was doing as a writer. Yeah, yeah. And you know, and, and really with Mother Night, and and I thank you for the kind words, and I and I'm proud of it. Uh, I think a lot of credit on that, though, also has to go to Bob Whitey, who produced it with me, but he wrote the screenplay, mm. and he was very close to Kurt. In fact, he just had a documentary come out That's about right. his four-year friendship with Kurt, um, So that because he's Bob's been primarily a documentarian. And I felt like he did a remarkable job when he wrote the script of capturing Kurt's voice. So, you know, then as a director, I could try to find the visual equivalents and the, you know, but... But if the writing hadn't been good, you know, you could just so easily screw that up, with, mm-hmm. you know, trying to translate Kurt to the screen. And I, and I think Bob did an amazing job of staying very, very close to what Kurt wrote, but not being a slave to it and being willing to. And 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 Kurt would joke about the fact that he's like, yeah, I actually don't know. I, it's been so long since I went back and read the book that I look at the script and I don't know what I wrote and what you wrote, hmm. you know, it's Bob. And, and I think that was couldn't have been a bigger compliment. But it's quite true. I mean, Bob invented chunks of that that fit in so seamlessly you'd never know it was Kurt or not. Um, but I, I know I, I really like the film and I appreciate you bringing it up. It's it's the only film left of mine that isn't isn't either out or coming out on Blu-ray. So I really hope hope it finds that home one day because I really was happy with the way we shot it and the way it looked. And it's a mix of black and white and color and and, and it would look so much better on Blu-ray. And so far, no one's ever done it. Uh, it's kind of been tied up. You know, in, in a library, a film library, um, but I'm I'm hoping so. Yeah, I know the Chocolate War is going to come out on Blu-ray. I think later this year, if I'm yes, not mistaken. Yes, I, I, if early fall is what I'm hearing now. Oh, good. I mean, I've I've sort of signed. You know, they they it's always a slow process, and especially since COVID, you know, they think there's a it's a slower process nowadays. But they got me a you know a copy of of the the transfer to sign off on, and you know. Uh, you know which I was quite happy with. I mean, it's an older transfer. It's a transfer we did back a few years ago, but I was happy with it at the time. And they kind of, it was like, yeah, it still looks really good to me. And I feel like it gains a lot that that film is so visually dark. Mm-hmm. I, we were trying to like, you know, we were really trying to get this kind of super dark moody feel with a lot of it. And DVD just didn't handle that that well. You know, it got, it got a little bit artifacty and strange and black crush looking and, so seeing it at a higher resolution, it definitely was like, oh, right, that's what it looked like when we shot it. So I was, I'm, I'm happy that it's finally like finding its way to, the, to, to being out there. Yeah, and it's a killer soundtrack. Your needle drops are just impeccable in that in that film. And I, I almost feel like with your taste in music, we could do a whole separate podcast of our favorite needle drops in movies. Oh, that'd be fun. We should do that sometime. Yeah, that'd that, be fun. that would be fun. Because I, I just want to hear your thoughts on music, too, because, again... When I when I when I saw that film and, and heard the soundtrack, I was like, "Geez, this just sounds like a mixtape I made for somebody." Yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny because when I was falling in love with movies, like two of my biggest influences were Scorsese and Kubrick, both of whom used a lot of source music. Sure, uh, you know, often in lieu of any score at all. So I wanted to do that too because I thought that was so cool and worked so well. So. Um, that's always been part of my mentality because those are the heroes I grew up, you know, and we all, you know, whatever you do, you have people that you look at and go, Oh, I want to do this the way they do it. And so they were, that was a huge influence on me. You know, I would go to their movies and 
be amazed by how they made music that wasn't designed for the film work so well for the mm -hmm. film. And I really like that. I, I actually think needle drops done well, I feel like adds so much because the very fact it wasn't designed for the film and there's like that slight tension between the music having its own identity and yet being part of the movie. I think when that works, it works on great. It works better than like any score. Um, and when it doesn't work, it can be really clunky and embarrassing. We've all had those moments too. Oh, for sure. And, and I know a lot of people cite, you know, Tarantino and Paul Thomas Anderson as being masters of that as well. And rightfully so. Oh yeah. I, I, I just, you know, one of the more subtle ones is, well, not necessarily subtle, but just, uh, you know, it's not one that's always pointed out first when you think of Tarantino, but his use of the Delphonics and Jackie Brown is just perfect. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, but yeah, you mentioned Scorsese, and he's going to come up probably in our conversation, <laughs> maybe mm -hmm. even with the first film we're going to talk about when we're talking about underrated films of the 60s. Um, and you could probably also think of them as underappreciated of the time or underseen. Uh, they've definitely garnered quite a following from cinephiles, probably listeners of this podcast and, and film scholars. So yes, we are going back to the 1960s. And I think much like our lineup for the seventies, this is an incredibly strong batch of titles we're going to talk about. Yes. Yes. There's, there's really only one that you and I both went, Oh wow. I'm revisiting. Maybe we, maybe wasn't as strong as, and I was only suggested as we remembered. Mm -hmm. But most of them are, are, and even that has value. Oh, for sure. But the other nine are all remarkable, remarkable filmmaking with no, uh, with no caveat or no asterisk. And, and the thing I was saying to you before we started that really struck me on a personal level was many of these, for whatever reason, were films I haven't seen in 20 years, 25 years, 30 years. So I remembered them really fondly, but, I, but, but that memory was, was an older memory. And revisiting them, I was struck – and this is part of, I think, the artistic experience with everything. It could be a book. It could be a play. It could be a painting. It is how, as we change as people, as we age and we go back to things, often our experience is so different. Yeah. So I, I didn't find myself not, not liking the films as much or in some cases I liked them even more. But what seemed most important or most striking or whatever had definitely shifted on a good number of these. And that was really interesting to me that there were films that were sadder or funnier or – whatever than I had remembered them being. Um, and, and I think that's part of what's so interesting about, and films particularly seem prone to that. I feel like because they're reflections of our, of, of our times and our whatever, you know, that when we go back as a different person, cause time has passed, we just see different things. And so that was, you know, that was a really striking thing to me about this particular experience, even more than the other times that we've done this. Yeah, I completely agree with that sentiment and even our first title here we're going to talk about blast of silence uh from 1961 alan Barron, kind of existential noir with a bit of a french new wave sensibility uh i i think that uh yes european cinema was having an influence uh around this time you know even though yeah at this when i first saw this movie I was I was really t I was really taken aback by the use of narration, and I think maybe I had just seen uh, <laughs> adaptation. And Brian Cox in that movie says, "And God help you if you use narration in your films. It's such a crutch." So, <laughs> so when I first saw this movie, I was just like, "Yeah, this is a lot of wall to wall narration here. Um, I don't know how I feel about it, even though it's pretty cool and 
especially now after a rewatch, I absolutely love the narration. It's incredible. It's uh, written by Waldo Salt. And you have an incredible killer jazz score. This is, you know, just an, and also an early example of just low budget independent filmmaking that clearly went on to influence one Martin Scorsese. (laughs) You can tell as you're watching it. Well, and it's funny to me, it also, it seemed like influenced Scorsese. It also seemed to be either influenced by or influencing of Cassavetes Mm -hmm. um, because he kind of had that. This also, even more than Scorsese had a, really improvisational feel to it, which is really interesting in a noir setting. Yeah, no kidding. But there's a lot of the scenes that feel like they could be in a Cassavetes movie. They could, you feel like anything could happen, um, you know, and the actors could sort of go off in any direction, which is a really, it was just an interesting marriage of that style to what's normally a very stringently controlled sort of storytelling in terms of noir. And, you know, so it, it, it was very striking for that to me. Um, I also, you know, the thing about the narration that makes it for me so interesting is that the kind of narration that we almost never hear, which is second person narration. Um, all the narration is you feel this, you see this, you sense danger. And there's something very arresting about it. I mean, it's arresting because we're not used to it, but also it, it subtly or maybe not so subtly puts you inside the main, you are the main character in a way. Yes. You know, when the film is telling you, you do this, you feel this, there's something about that that I think screws with your head a little bit while you're watching it in a really interesting way. Um, and I liked it. And it's not something I remember seeing ever in another film. I'm, I'm sure somebody's done it. Everybody's done things more than, you know, everything's been used more than once. But it's the only film I can remember that uses second person narration very intentionally and very heavily. Yeah, that's a good call. I, I'd have to look up and see when and if that has been used before. I'm sure you know, people know <laughs> right off the top of their heads, but yeah, I, I, I think I first saw this and I was just like, Hmm, this is really like, yeah, just off in this really interesting way. And probably because it was improvised, maybe I was expecting something a little more controlled. Having seen like, you know, the, the, the Fritz Lang world of noir and stuff like that. Uh, but yeah, his, his performance here, is just so not very showy. It's a, it's more of an internal struggle about him not wanting to be this person that he's ultimately become. Yes. And whether it's due to being isolated for so long or he's just conditioned to be a hitman or a little bit of both, you really, yeah, the, the narration really puts you in his mindset in a way that gets you really involved and actually on edge when he ha- when he- when he's confronted by Big Ralph <laughs> in that bathroom, you know. Yes, yes, and and it's funny because for all of, the, I think you really nailed something too. Is that it's so low key for mm-hmm. a movie about violence and hitman, and it's his performance, but the whole feel of it has a kind of almost quietly depressed feeling to it, yeah. like. It's it's a noir, you know, thriller, but it's it's really not pushing for the thrills. It's really pushing for a quieter exploration of this guy's soul, which is really interesting. Um, you know, it it the the action that is in it exists to. I mean, this is one of those films where I feel like the plot exists to examine the character, mm-hmm. not the character exists to further the plot. Um, and I think that's a really interesting thing when you see pieces where, yes, there's plot, but the plot's there so you can get inside this person's head. 
Oh, that's a great point. Yeah. And I think I'm, I'm more drawn to that over time. Yeah. I guess, yeah. Character studies, but just, you know, uh, focusing on the actors and yeah, less about it being weighted down by a lot of plot points or a lot of twists or, or things that you come to expect something uh, unexpected in, in a noir, especially when the way things play out in the third act. And when it doesn't necessarily, you kind of go, huh, it does it end, you know, more with, with a whimper than a bang. But I, I think it's effective. I mean, again, a lot of the films we're talking about too are a little fatalistic here and there <laughs> in ways yes. that surprised me for this era. Uh, and yeah, uh, the, the way this ends, I think they were actually filming during like a crazy hurricane or something <laughs> at least the way things start out when he's walking on that he beach is definitely there's definitely weather going on oh yeah and it adds to i mean i was looking i'm just looking you know i have all these i made little notes that i take while i'm watching it and, and one of the things i wrote was that how effectively depressing the photography is mm -hmm. like it's it's beautiful in the way it's shot and it's very stark but you know lots of films are beautiful and stark but there's something about this beautiful and stark that really created a mood for me it, again it was more about the emotion than it was about tension like often in noir the shadows and everything are all about ooh, it's scary what's in those shadows yeah and there are touches of that but it really felt moody to me the way the the, the darkness of it didn't feel so much about what's going to jump out of the dark places it's like no you're already inside this guy's dark places yeah, and and the fight he has with Big Ralph is really messy. Like the confrontation they have does feel like it, exactly how it would play out in real life as opposed to yes. being really staged and choreographed and I I just think that whole sequence is beautifully shot. The whole movie is. And yeah, I'm not sure why it was like, yeah, it was pretty great, not one of my favorites when I first saw it, but the more I see it, the more I'm like, wow, this is actually kind of a masterpiece, really. Well, and that's a thing that I, I was saying, too, is that, you know, things just evolve when you go back to them. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what's cool about art. You know, I mean, there's there's so many, I don't know, books that I've reread, you know, at age 55 that I didn't get when I was 25 and or things that when I was 25, I thought were masterpieces that now at 60, I'm like going, Meh. I mean, it's just and that's 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 really, I think, one of the best things about art is that it sort of evolves as we evolve. You know, it's not a fixed point. It, 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 I, I really think art is an interaction between the audience and the piece of art. So even if the art hasn't changed, you have. So it's going to be a new experience. And I, I've definitely had that thing you're describing with films where where I, I like them. And then I see them again later. Like, how could I only have liked that? That's yeah. amazing. And I think some of that, you know, that is as you get older, you – appreciate more things you understand more things things speak more deeply to you i had that and we'll get as we go through it but a couple of these films i definitely found affected me on a more emotional level you know some of these were films that i really thought oh that was cool the way they were shot or it was and then now it's like no this is really moving um and but i was too young i think and with some of them to appreciate the loss or or sadness that they carry yeah, and I also feel like I'm becoming more sensitive with age. Like, <laughs> I think that happens to a lot of people, but I just, yeah, I mean, watching Starman on the big screen again, yeah, I was like kind of 
overwhelmed with emotion in a way that I probably wasn't when I first saw it when I was a kid, even though I did see it on the big screen. It's just amazing to me how over time I've, I feel a lot more when it comes to watching a movie or, or listening to music too. So, and I think that's, that makes sense to me because I mean, if you stay, I mean, I think a lot of people sadly close down emotionally as they get older, but if you don't, then as you get older, you've experienced more loss. Mm-hmm. You realize the temp- how temporary, you know, when you're, when you're 25, life doesn't feel temporary. You kind of feel like you're going to live forever and, you know, regrets and things like that don't feel the same. I mean, you might have regrets in love that are so powerful, but the older you get and the more you go, oh, my time is limited, the more you really can reflect on, you know, life is full of sadnesses and losses and people you loved who aren't here anymore or things that you dreamed of you, that you didn't achieve and you have to go, you know what, that's never going to happen. I had these dreams and, you know, I'm old enough that that's probably not going to be real. Um, and I think that that does if you don't shut off from those things, I think your your vulnerability and tenderness to sort of the whole range of emotions is just higher. You know, having you know, in your case, having kids, whatever. I mean, it's a lot of things in the world open you up. I think as time goes on. Oh yeah, again, eloquent, eloquently put. <laughs> as I struggle, as I struggle to say that, eloquent, eloquently put. It's a hard way, to, hard hard word to say sometimes. Um, but you, yeah, you mentioned kids. So let's move on to the innocence. <laughs> ah, what a good, good segue! Woohoo! Yeah. Wow. Ah, that yeah. Very cool. Oh boy, Deborah Carr in the Innocence, a movie I'm dying to see on a big screen. It is one of the most gorgeously shot films, yes. maybe ever. Um, and yeah, just I mean, watching even just the Criterion Blue Blu-ray, it just I'm kind of floored by. Not just not just you know the cinematography, but the impeccable sound design, the the, the choices yes. throughout this film, really is unnerving in ways that clearly again influence so many filmmakers to come uh, when it comes to the horror genre and how it plays more psychologically than let's do jump scares. You know, I think that's. Yes. That's that's what's really important. Obviously, this is based on Henry James's Turn of the Screw, and I know um, Mike Flanagan did a miniseries fairly recently that covers the same territory, uh, but I haven't seen that yet, and I've been kind of interested in catching up with it now that I've just rewatched The Innocence and also proclaim it now as one of my favorite horror films, one of my favorite haunted house films. Uh, maybe ever, I think. It should be right up there with The Haunting when people talk about this this era of horror filmmaking, for sure. Well, it's funny, because for me, I, I've always been even loath to actually call it a horror film, because mm-hmm. it really feels more like a psychological thriller. Sure. I mean, there are some horror tropes within it and horror setups within it, but it's really about psychology, and it's really about what's going on inside this woman's brain much more than traditionally we think of horror as being. Um, it, it, that's one of the things I like so much about it. It's, I mean, I've loved, this is one of those movies I've loved. I saw it when I was a kid, and I've loved it ever since, and it has not changed that much for me because I keep going back and seeing it and going, yeah, still love it, still love it. <laughs> um, and, but it's, it's funny, I've never found it really scary. I find it disturbing. Yeah, un- unnerving. It's scary. Yeah. It's like, and I, it's actually, it actually was something I thought runs through again. A lot of the films we're going to be talking about today, I found Blast of Silence disturbing. Um, you know, and I, I definitely, The Innocence to me is a, a disturbing and thought-provoking movie. 
and, and it doesn't it does feel uneasy to watch it. But it's not you know in a world where people have grown up on jump scares and blood and gore, it, it, it's not scary in that way. It, it it's it's the inference that's really deeply creepy, and you know the the sexual inference inference with the kids, which mm. was really ahead of its time and is pretty pretty out there and, and again very disturbing. I mean that there's this kind of strange relationship between Deborah Kerr and that kid, that boy, where you know, nothing happens and it's why it's brilliant. You know, you don't nothing 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 we actually see, but there's certainly a sexual energy between her and this little boy who may or may not be the soul carrying the soul of an adult man. Uh it, it's really just feels wrong in a really good way. Oh, and, and, that, like, and, that, and that dream sequence too. I mean, this, yeah, this whole movie, it's about a mental collapse of sorts. It's about neuroses. It's about, um, yeah, just kind of forbidden desires perhaps, or at least just the fact that she's experiencing all this while among children is very off-putting. It's really, um, yeah, again, I use the word unnerving quite a bit <laughs> because I felt that way and I felt that throughout and also just kind of marveling at the compositions and just, you know, certain shots of just when that figure of him appears in the window. Uh, yeah, I again, maybe I wouldn't necessarily lump this in as a horror film along oh, nah, maybe along the lines of something like Rosemary's baby, but still, yes, the more in that kind of, yeah. yeah. And, and, and I think, I think most people would say it's horror. It's just, to me, I think horror became such a cliche mm -hmm. that I tend to think of movies like this as psychological thrillers, even if they're supernatural elements or in this case, one of the great things of the film is that it's the question marks around the supernatural, you know, yeah. what is and isn't going on is kind of the point of the movie is like, what's in her head what isn't in her head. Uh, and there've been plenty of films that have played with that. You know, is it, is this, is this subjective or objective? And, but this just does it incredibly well. And in a way that, and in a way where it's really disturbing either way. It's like if, if she's making up 90% of this or only making up 10% of it, it's really disturbing. Oh, that <laughs> kiss, you know, that uh, kiss. Oof. Oh Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's just bleh. God, it's 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 great that way. And the and the imagery, you're right, is so beautiful. It's and it's very specific. It's it's not just beautiful, but it it's unlike again other films in that genre. It's much closer I mean the cinematography reminded me of, of Citizen Kane. It's that kind mm. of really deep focus kind of thing, which is so interesting, where you've got somebody's face very large in the foreground and somebody far away in the background and they're both very sharp. And it's a disturbing style of cinematography, but it's not one that I, I think of when I think of either horror or thrillers that often. I mean, you know, horror and thrillers often seem to rely on shallow focus. They seem to rely on, oh, I can't really see what's back there or I can't, you know, mm -hmm. and keeping figures very isolated in the frame. So to have a film where it's all about various literal levels of reality you know there's somebody's 30 feet away from the camera somebody else is two feet away from a camera and yet they manage to light it and shoot it in a way where they're both sharp is really interesting because it kind of goes with that theme of well what reality are we watching here and and um and there's also something about when you see somebody's face in the foreground and then somebody far away in the background that sort of implies that person the far away person is in the head of the person close up to you yeah um, 
it's not literal, but it kind of has that implication as if you're seeing their memory in the same shot. Um, and I just was, but I was, I just, and it wasn't something I had thought about before, but watching it this time, I thought, yeah, that's not a style I can think of many horror films using. And they use it very consistently. It's a real, I mean, the whole film is shot with this very sort of deep focus feeling that I think is just both gorgeous and effective. Yeah. There's like a kind of like a displaced subjectivity going on when she's looking in windows, you know, obviously you can think of it as a reflective surface and a mirroring of her psychosis and things like that. And, and, and wondering, yes, is what she experiencing really happening or is it all in her head? Is this situation, is this isolation creating these feelings in her Again, like two movies in a row, I'm thinking a lot of of movies or a lot of favorite movies are kind of about lonely people not knowing how to function in certain situations like this. Yes, she has some people around her, including kids, but she's, uh, you know, she's she's clearly have gone through something. And that that ending leaves a lot of questions. And we'll, we'll, we'll have that again later on with other films, too. But. Uh, I think. Yeah, I mean, this is, there are some of these films are hard to talk about without being really spoiler heavy. I mean, that it's tricky because a lot of these films end up in places that you don't expect, and you know, it's doing a disservice to people who might not have seen them to give away too much of that. But it, it's interesting because a lot of these movies, you end up somewhere and go, "Wow, okay, didn't realize I was going to end up there." Right. No, exactly. And I know. Um, I think. Clayton actually sort of adapted this maybe from a play and that was, you know, on stage more of a creaky melodrama that actually did feature ghosts (laughs) grasping characters at certain points and sort of spelling it out more in a way that I think wouldn't work and he decided to hire Truman Capote to adapt the screenplay, maybe make it a little bit more subtle and suggestive and certainly the ambiguous ending uh, is one that's going to haunt you. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it's... I, I, I've noticed that a few of these films... You know, one of the things that, to me, is always a signal that I have a, a connection to a movie is something very visceral. It's sort of that hair on the back of your neck feeling. I tend to feel it, though, in my jaw and my arms. It's kind of a goosebumpy, shivery yeah. sensation, along with a feeling of, of, of kind of unexplained emotion underneath. You know, it means I'm really like being disturbed by, but also deeply into the film. And I was had that with like half of the movies on this list um, where I'm watching it. And even though I'd seen them before, some of them I'd seen many times before, I'm still getting that kind of literal shivery physical sensation that's like, oh, just kind of creepy and kind of fascinating. But it's they're operating on a visceral level, even though they're very smart and intellectual movies. And I always think. Those are like to me always my, my favorite movies and most interesting films is like the film can can kind of kind of get my brain and my gut at the same time. I think that's really amazing. Yeah, I think if we had filmed this lineup, you know, for like a film festival, I would I would I would feel better if we brought a therapist in the lobby (laughs) (laughs) to help the audience afterwards, because yeah, these things, they, they do seep into your subconscious. They do make you think a lot. And again, we mentioned that a lot, but those, those are my favorite types of movies too, for sure. The ones that don't leave you with easy answers at the end. 
And my mom's the, quite the opposite. She wants to know everything that's happened. She wants to know what happened to the killer or did this really happen or not? She wants, I think, I think she practically wants a psychiatrist at the end of Psycho explaining everything. <laughs> Well, and, and look, I think that's a, a very understandable human want. Sure. I think the frustration of that, though, is often what makes for great art. Mm-hmm. Like, I think the fact that it is frustrating not to have answers is what makes something haunting. Um, you know, yeah, you know, we all, on some very primal, young level, want somebody to say, "Here's what it is: she's crazy, or she's not crazy, or this, this incident is." Re-. I, I mean, I think wanting that is what makes not getting it effective. <laughs> Um, but sometimes I think with storytelling, that's the thing you have to remember is that giving the audience what they want is actually sometimes a recipe for disaster. I remember somebody talking about that with some TV show that was all based on a will they, won't they romance. And it was hugely popular. And the second they finally got together, like no one ever watched it again. Mm. You know, as much as people had been saying, you can't just leave it dangling out there. You know, it's like once you give people an answer, they can put it away. And I find even if a film's brilliantly made, if it if it's all too neat, I forget it much faster. Um, you know, five years later, I'm much more hard pressed to remember it or or be have it show up in my brain unexpectedly. Whereas when I'm left with questions, it kind of haunts you. You know, it, it becomes its own ghost um, because you don't have a neat way to, to to put it away on a shelf. You know, there's a particular director who once said. Don't look for explanations in my work, and that would be Louis Bunuel. Yes. And another good segue. <laughs> Thank you. The Exterminating Angel from 1962. And uh, I think Ebert said in his review that, you know, Bunuel is this filmmaker who obsessively reworked the themes that they couldn't shake. It was, these were the things that kept them up at night. And certainly, yes, uh, someone like Hitchcock definitely went and revisited uh, those themes time and time again, particularly voyeurism in his case. But yeah, this is a really fascinating film that, again, the first time I saw it, a lot of question marks hanging over my head in a good way. And uh, revisiting in this one, too, it's, again, uh, one of my favorites, although I got to say Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie is probably still my favorite. This is probably a close second to that. Well, and, and, that, and the two of them definitely have some, are definitely cousins, yes. in a way. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, and I think probably quite intentionally, that in some ways, Discreet Charm, and it's exactly what you're saying about Ebert saying it, I mean, he is revisiting not only the themes, but in some ways even revisiting the story in those two movies. I mean, it's... Sure. It's not exactly the same. It's like a reversal. Yeah. Yes. But it's still about the, you know, affluent people and their relationship to being unable to get what they want. And I mean, it's definitely part of his kind of specific worldview. But it's really, I mean, they would be a great double feature because the two of them, you know, do sort of play off each other. Yeah, I'm. I mean, cl- clearly classism. Yeah, he's really interested. Oh, class. In I mean, yeah. I mean, he was obsessed with class. He was obsessed with religion and the emptiness of religion and the the, the promise religion would give of, you know, of answers that it could never provide. Um, and you know, and, and he had this dark sense of humor about about wealth and class and society and religion and and all the strictures that we live under. But what I, what I love about Exterminating Angel and why it, it may even be my favorite Bunuel film, although, I, you know, often my favorite Bunuel film is whatever Bunuel film I watched. <laughs> sure. Um, but, but 
for me, you know, it's when you it's when you read reviews about it, whatever, people always talk about how funny it is, and it, and it has a real mordant humor to it. Mm-hmm. But I find it more, again, those these words, haunting and disturbing, and less funny than some of his other work. Um, I I'd mean, agree with that. yeah, there are really funny elements or moments or lines or images, but it's also really sad and. I mean, you know, these these rich people are trapped in this room, and 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 really, the only surreal thing in this movie is the basic idea. The only surreal element is that there is it's a bunch of wealthy people going to a dinner party and unable to leave for no explicable reason. They just can't get themselves to walk out the door, and that's sort of magical and not real. But all the behavior beyond that is pretty rooted in naturalistic behavior. It mm-hmm. might be exaggerated at times, or whatever, but it's. It's sort of like, okay, here's the surreal premise, and now we're going to watch it realistically. And I think in a lot of Bunuel's other movies, the premise is surreal, but so is the behavior, so is it. And I think it's a really interesting contrast in this movie that, like, yes, the the setup is completely not real and absurdist and all that, but how they behave once they can't leave is kind of a little bit Lord of the Flies. I mean, it's kind of a little bit rooted in really what happens when you lock a bunch of people and in this case a bunch of very self-involved wealthy people what happens when they can't get away from each other and can't go anywhere um and that to me is interesting because it's sort of simultaneously absurdist but also very real it's funny in my notes i wrote down lord of the flies campfire at one point <laughs> mm-hmm. when they yeah. when they, when they're setting up a fire in the yeah in, in this you know, luxurious setting. You know, it's hard not to think of that. I also thought of, I, pr- I probably thought this when I first saw Darren Aronofsky's mother not too long ago. I probably cited Bunuel when I was talking about it. Just because, like, everything takes place in this one contained environment and chaos is happening all around and people are, and society is breaking down within this one place. Those, mm-hmm. t- those types of scenarios really get to me. I don't have, like, a lot of phobias, but the idea of being trapped and not being able to leave something really gets to me, really... Yeah, I, I mean... I, That's yeah. actually... I, I would not have thought of the mother thing, but the second you said it, I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're very different in style, but yes. in terms of that claustrophobic breaking down of reality in an enclosed place, there's, there's definitely a kinship there. Oh, for sure, and I and I know some have cited this as like a critique of the, you know, the the post Spanish Civil War rise in elitism. But I'm not as familiar with the historical side of things, or you know, that context that he probably infused into this. I mean, you also mentioned religion, and clearly how that how this movie ends, you can't help but laugh a little bit at the idea of sheep running into a church. Um, <laughs> yes, and that's just yeah. Boonwell is going to be Boonwell, and I accept that. And but you're right in saying that there is a lot of sadness here in the fact that some of these people's behaviors. You see them again. We probably will mention this in other films too. People having breakdowns and and losing their identity and losing their sense of self is in of itself very sad to witness. Even if these are bourgeois privileged partygoers, you know. And what's masterful is he does keep a sense of humor. I mean, because right. I think it would have been a terrible mistake to have gone full tilt drama. You know, I mean, he still is always, but well, I, is always giving a playful wink. Mm-hmm. You know, he's always, but he's also, he's sort of taking two seemingly paradoxically 
incompatible things, which is this very steely-eyed look at the darkness of the human soul. And then he's also kind of smiling and winking and nudging you in the ribs at the same time. And it's, in this film, to me particularly, like, it's amazing that he juggles both of those at once. Yeah. And somehow it, you can really sense the sadness and what wealth does to people and what status does to people and how these people have disconnected from their own humanity and all these very serious things. And yet just keep it funny enough and light enough that it doesn't feel good for you. It doesn't feel like I'm lecturing you about all these things. <laughs> I'm just showing you these interesting, weird characters. Um, but underneath there's some really serious ideas as absurd and, and, and funny as some of the moments are. No, I agree. I, I agree completely with that. I mean, part of me wants to interpret this on a char- <clears throat> like on a Charlie Kaufman level of Bunuel is playing God in this scenario, and he's channeling his anger at all these characters by not allowing them to leave the film. <laughs> you know, kind of like you know what Chuck Jones did with that Daffy Duck cartoon, <laughs> just <laughs> manipulating his creation because he knows he can. Uh, but no, I think I I think we've nailed this one pretty pretty clearly. It's just yeah, uh, sort of roasting the political climate at the time, but also it's still eerie that it kind of plays true to how things are in the world. Period, <laughs> not just of its time. You know, I think no, oh, absolutely no. That that and, and in fact, one of the interesting things about it is he actually shot it in Mexico, mm. but it definitely feels like it's about Europe. Right. I mean. Mexico doesn't really have some of that history of the same sort of history of, of an established upper class and, you know, it's kind of gigantic ancient houses. And so it was funny because it was during that Mexican period where he mostly was working there. But, uh, you know, I didn't realize that until watching it this time and then trying to read a little about it. I just assumed it was shot in Spain because it, it definitely feels like it's much more about a certain old European money decadence than it is about a new world form of decadence. Yeah, and I, I definitely want to see more Bunuel. I have, I've, I think I've only seen four of his movies, and this just when you watch one of his movies, you kind of want to explore and see these themes redone in different ways throughout his career. I'm just, he's definitely one director I'm going to cover on this podcast, which I'm surprised I haven't yet. <laughs> just uh, well, no, this is a masterpiece too. Remarkable in that he's so damn entertaining, mm-hmm. and yet. At the same time, so full of ideas and thought and, you know, but he's he's very devilish. He's very playful. And his range is spectacular. I mean, I just rewatched uh, Los Olivedados, uh, you know, The, the Damned, uh, his film from 1950, which is flat out neorealistic drama. You know, mm. no, nothing weird, nothing. I mean, it is just like, I mean, there's one or two dream sequences, but. The film itself is this gritty, realistic street drama. And just realizing that's the same guy as was then, you know, not that many years later making Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie or, or, or Obscure Object of Desire. Or, it's really amazing. More than most directors, he had an incredible range of, of, of tones. And especially given, as everybody does point out correctly, he had a lot of obsessive things within his movies i mean mistrust of religion or whatever but how that was expressed over the course of his career was just remarkable in its 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 breadth of, of of ways of approaching those ideas yeah and and managing to retain like a visceral intensity at times and 
you know these what what these characters experience and their personal anxieties you actually do feel for them as opposed to demonize them you know which is a really good point because it would have been very easy to turn them just in the cartoons right which would have just worn out its welcome i think you would have gotten it and you would have gone yeah they're shallow and venal and you know and yet if that was all they were you'd get it you'd say okay got it don't need to finish the rest of it but because they these people still have humanity and they're trying to find ways to reconnect or cover up or deal with that humanity it does mean you can you can sort of despise them in a way and identify with them at the same time which is always really interesting yeah when directors can do that i'm i'm kind of in awe because you're right it's so easy to do the easy, yeah just completely make the characters one thing and one thing only as opposed to make them fully dimensional human beings um the next film is a really challenging one to talk about uh, for obvious reasons, but oh, a lot of people <laughs> would eventually sort of, I don't know, um, consider an actor like William Shatner to stay in one lane after he became <laughs> known as Captain Kirk. But he's had some interesting performances here and there, and I'm not sure if there's ever been a more chilling performance that he's given than in the intruder from 1962, uh, a film by Roger Corman. Which is <sighs> my mind. I'm sure it is, it is. It is talk about not playing the type. Uh, this was not a film I'd ever seen. And I thank you for turning me onto it. Cause I didn't even know about it, which is pretty weird. Cause I feel like I know about most movies. Even, even if I haven't seen, it. I'd never heard of it. And, and then when I did hear about it, and it's like Roger Corman and William Shatner in a movie about, like, race, racial strife, it's like, oh, my God, that's going to be so embarrassing. And it ain't. It's powerful and honest and political and complicated and, like, has nothing to do with exploitation or any of the things that we associate with Corman. Mm-hmm. Um, and Shatner is sort of, for the most part, pretty subtle. I mean, he's somebody that sort of in some ways become a joke of like, oh, he's so big and over the top. And he's a couple of over top moments in the movie, but there's a lot of subtlety in the part that he plays. And and so I was delighted that you suggested this because I, I was to me, it was a complete discovery. Well, it was for me, too, when I was uh, exploring, you know, the films that Roger Corman had made because this really stood out, like you mentioned, and was completely unexpected for me. Uh, and yet there was a, a downside to his ambition to create this socially relevant and provocative film because even at just a cost of like $80,000, it lost money. And it was the first and maybe only Corman film to do so. No one wanted to distribute it. It did receive a lot of acclaim from critics and people who saw it, but... Uh, no, I mean, this actually really bummed out everybody involved because they put so much into this story, and I don't think audiences were ready for it. I don't know if, yeah, they had certain expectations going in, but, yeah, it's... it's, it's well, a, and I don't know how much audiences would even be ready for it today, which is no, why it's I know. a big movie. I mean, you open the film with this bunch of very nice-seeming white people, like mostly older, like charming, you know, sweet little old grandmas and up, who start throwing around the N-word and horrible racist comments and cliches. And it's like, whoa, what am I in the middle of? Um, and it's it's really disturbing. I mean, by about three minutes in, you're like, 
holy crap, what is this? And it's probably a very – what it is is a very honest portrait of a level of racism and anger and hatred that was very much a part of the South. Well, it's been part of American history in general, South century in particular. And that was the, this was around the moment of, of forced integration of schools. And it brought out a lot of the worst of people that they normally would might keep a tiny bit hidden. And at this point in this town, it's no longer even trying to be hidden. And it's really disturbing because it's the casual racism. Like we've all seen lots of Hollywood movies where there's the bad racist Southern. Mm-hmm. This is a movie where it's, it's the town and it's the sweet little old lady who owns the supermarket. And it's, you know, and that I think is an honesty about America that you don't see even now in movies very much. We really like to, to, you know, to unintentionally make a pun, segregate racists. We, we, you know, like, Oh, they're the really horrible, big, tough-looking guy, you know, who is the one bad guy in town, as opposed to, no, it's kind of like everybody in town. Yeah. And that, I think, is a very unusual thing in an American film. Yeah, it, it treats racism as this virus that has completely infected this entire community in town. And here comes Adam Kramer, played by William Shatner, to sort of yeah light a match under this fire and and sort of just yeah i don't i don't like movies about this level of manipulation you know where somebody comes in and is just like i am pure chaos i am you know (laughs) that's kind of what people talk about when they think of heath ledger's portrayal of the joker in the dark knight is that i'm just here to fuck things up just because i can right you know and that just automatically sends chills down my spine. His performances in this was completely unexpected and horrible and disturbing on so many levels. And Corman shot all the long shots with Shatner delivering those speeches. He added a lot of the dialogue in post-production. So the crowd had no idea what he was saying. I mean, so there's like this weird disconnect at times. Uh, Yeah. I mean, he tells these stories about how like basically he would have been run out of town Mm -hmm. because they shot in a real Southern town. And a lot of the people in small parts are real people from the town and they look like scary people who might be in the Ku Klux Klan. And so he basically created a false movie so that he could make the movie and not get killed. Um, And so, yeah, he would dub in speeches for, for, for Shatner later and, um, and you see why when you see it, because it's it's really out there. I mean, one thing that bothered me a bit, I mean, I was torn. At times I liked it, at times I didn't. There, there's tremendous ambiguity about what Shatner's trying to accomplish. And while I'm normally a fan of ambiguity, I did feel like in this case, I did want I wish I had a little more insight into beyond just I want to create chaos. Mm-hmm. Because unlike the Joker, he seems like a very real human being. And it seems like he's come to this town with a very real agenda. But... Given that the town is already violently racist and seems, you know, like it's not like he's not, he's not, he's not, it's not his fault the town's racist. The town's racist. Uh, I, I wish I had a little more sense of, you know, he clearly wants to accumulate power. He clearly wants to put himself in that position of, but, but I wasn't quite sure watching the film to what end. Right. And, and I think, so I think thought, even a character asks him outright maybe later on, like, what, what, what is the point to doing this maybe? But I don't think there really is that answer. Yeah, and, and, and normally that doesn't bother me. Normally I love that ambiguity. In this case, it, it at moments felt like a cop-out to me, although mm-hmm. at other moments it felt like, oh, that's just what makes it interesting. Um, but I also, and I also felt a little bit 
towards the end that the film was leaning a little bit more on the, oh, Shatner's the problem, not the town. And what I loved for a lot of it was, no, the problem's the town. Shatner happens to be there to exploit it, but this town, <laughs> this, this town had cross burnings and people throwing around the N-word and it was completely segregated and had a racial violence. All that was there before Shatner got there. Right. He tries to focus it. But but I feel like towards the end of the movie, there's a little bit of a feeling of, oh, it's Shatner's fault. And I felt like, oh, don't go there because that's you've been so brave and don't turn it, turn it into the more traditional, he's the problem. Because for two-thirds of the movie, certainly it's very clear that he ain't the problem. He's just profiting from the problem. I think that you're right. There is kind of a conflicting message there towards the end. I guess I found it interesting that that's what the town ultimately decides. Like, oh, we aren't the problem. It's this, we need a scapegoat. It's this guy. You know, he clearly has enforced all of these beliefs we've had in a way that's, you know, completely out of hand. I mean, and it's, it's, it's a, yeah, it's kind of a confused message and ending overall. And maybe it could have been expanded just a little bit further to really, you know, well, bring it also- home feels like it pulls its punches a bit. I mean, yeah, I feel yeah, like yeah. the movie, I mean, I feel like the movie should have in a, in a real world, the movie would have ended in a darker place. I don't think it would have resolved as resolved as it was. Right. Um, if, and, and I think it only bothers me in the sense that the film is so shockingly honest for so long. And unlike almost every American film from the era, but even since dealing with racism, you know, that feel often dishonest and try to like, you know, it's like, yeah, those occasional bad people who are as opposed to no, it was the system. Mm-hmm. It was the whole. It, the country was racist, not like two people. It was like, um, and so to see a film that was so bold, I felt a little frustrated by the ending. But I do think you raise a very interesting point, um, and when I hadn't thought of it, makes me want to go back and look at the film again. Which is, is some of that the town trying to trying to put off its own guilt on this stranger? That's what I'm thinking. But if the if the town is doing it and not the film, I actually feel very differently about it because that to me is very interesting. Yeah, I don't know if I if the film supports that or not. It's it could be again me projecting a little bit or at least hoping that's the case. But yeah, I I, I yeah, it's, it's again one of those visceral experiences where you just feel completely uncomfortable throughout the whole film in a way that's also incredibly sad because this still happens. And I've seen it. I, oh, yeah. I, you know? So. Yeah, no, we, we like to feel we've come way further on this than, you know, I, I, I mean, yes, I feel like we've covered up some of the most obvious mm-hmm. racism in America somewhat, although I certainly think the Trump era has re, has given people the freedom to start voicing that stuff more viciously and openly again. But I don't think the underlying uh, obsession with with making people of color the other and the threat and the problem has ever gone away in America. And I think it's a big part of our history and how our culture, what it grew out of. I mean, you know, it's it's you know, you don't you don't start a country with with slavery as sort of the basis of how you gain most of your wealth and, and end up you know, end up having not having that have reverberations throughout the rest of your history. Uh, and I feel like we've never, we've never fully dealt with that and, and examined that and examined all the subtle ways it's permeated so many things in the culture. 
Yeah. No, it's that's very true, and those um those ideas will come up later, including in our next film in a very yes. very provocative and interesting way that yes. again I'm still floored by. Uh, Shot Corridor from Samuel Fuller, a film that I first saw as a uh, psychology undergrad student. Oh, <laughs> Think, wow. you know, that is cool. Sort of thinking like, all right, I, I, I guess I have to analyze the portrayal of mental health in this and the, 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 you know, the institution that he's in, as opposed to looking at it as like a B picture because Samuel Fuller was kind of known for doing those types of stories here. And there are moments of that where it's like, yeah, this feels kind of you know, exploitive and creepy and wrong in some ways. I, yeah, I think it can feel cheesy in moments yeah. and, you know, it's what, that's kind it's of what I'm conflicted about. Is. A little conflicted about more despite, yes, I do love it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, you know, I mean, part of what Fuller does kind of Gene, is, is he's, he is making a B movie. It's a lurid. It's, you know, it, it, it's, it's the plot is really clunky and obvious and we've seen it a million times before and since you know newsman goes undercover in dangerous situation i mean how, that's been done eight trillion times ace in the hole which we could always talk about for another decade. yes great great film <laughs> yeah um but but what fuller does there are two things he does i think that are that make this into a, like a minor classic one is that he has a sense of humor about the fact that he's making a lurid b movie mm. um and doesn't you know like, like he knows how over the top some of this is when you've got like, you know, the main character stumbling, who's like a reporter pretending to be crazy, stumbling into a room full of attractive young women who all start closing in on him, like, like lionesses hunting a kill. And we hear the voiceover of the soundtrack going, nymphos. It's like, <laughs> it's funny. I mean, you can't tell me for a second that Fuller, who's a really smart guy, didn't know how completely over the top and goddamn funny that is. I mean, it's. It's, you know, it, it, it's sort of announcing this is a B movie. You know, we're not. Yeah, yeah I, 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 I'm going to I'm going to side on the fact that I think people today will look at that and find it troublesome. <laughs> I don't know. You know, I mean, yes, I, I see. Right. The and, and, and perhaps rightly so. I mean, it is. I mean, the whole idea of like that was a thing that that women were, although it was starting to fade already by the early 60s, but it was still mm-hmm. there. But the idea that, you know, women who like sex were mentally ill and and that nymphomania was this term thrown around for and, and the idea that but the way it's played out in this movie where it's so funny and it's being so literal that they're literally attacking him and essentially you know ripping his clothes off you know i i think even in 63 that would have been seen i think i mean i was two years old in 63 so what do i know but i i can only imagine that would have been seen as somewhat ridiculously over the top even at the time i I could be wrong but um but so you've got that side of it and then you've got the fact that he's you know while the plot and all that stuff is cliche and the the specifics and the detail with which he examines those cliches are so brilliant and cool and political and yes tie into last film there's a lot of stuff about racism in the movie uh there's a lot of i mean it's you know, he takes this very kind of uh, he, he takes a B movie and he makes it about a lot of important things and makes it really thought provoking while it's still being a B movie. Yeah, I mean, everybody is all the characters here are wild and outlandish in in ways that you know I could see 
some people, especially through today's lens, going, yeah, I mean, this isn't the best portrayal of people who are experiencing psychosis. Uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, I sort of filter that through my own lens and go, well, yeah, it was a different time and this film was made during that time. And to me, it can feel like tonal whiplash in ways that can make you cringe, but I still think the overall effect is very strong. I mean, the uh, Harry Rhodes or Harry Rhodes in the role of Trent, ooh, the the white supremacist that happens to be black, all those scenes yeah. are well, incredible. That's the one that really, I think, stands out. Yeah. I mean, it's full of amazing things, but, you know, the, the, the sequence where, you, where there's this young black man who's been so traumatized mm-hmm. by his experiences with racism that he kind of basically has the psychosis that he is a white member of the Ku Klux Klan is pretty potent stuff. And, and again, just like with the intruder, it's still pretty potent stuff. Yes. It's not like, you know, when he starts talking about his feelings and about, it's not like, Oh yeah, that was another time and place. It's like, Holy crap. This is like completely relevant right now. Um, and, and the film, and the film has a lot of things like that, whether it's, you know, the atom bomb scientist who, you know, it's all these people who face this kind of trauma of what's mm-hmm. wrong with society, um, trying to escape. And that was, that's a pretty sophisticated idea in a movie that pretends to be, you know, the bottom half of a double bill at your local drive-in. Yeah, and I think, you know, rather than leaving the audience with any sort of concrete conclusion, he sort of insinuates this, like, cyclical nature of systems in place and that could include (laughs) just the way that um, environment is set up and it doesn't necessarily allow for people to get better it just sort of allows them to cope with who they are in a way even if you know they're still unwell um, for the most part I think it's you know, it's kind of a challenging ending once again. I mean, there's there's also those sequences, too, that are a little off, those fantasy sequences that are shot in color and they look like stock footage. Yes. <laughs> that's kind of like, hmm, well, that's a little jarring to just throw in there here and there. But, you know, he was a provocateur for a time when audiences were definitely not prepared for this kind of experience. And But in hindsight, I think a lot of people go back and look at his work and just go, yeah, he, he was onto something uh, in a lot of ways in, in terms of his social critiques. So his social crease and his filmmaking style. I mean, right. I mean, I don't know that the black and white color thing completely works. I think I read somewhere that that was actually footage that he had taken, but not for the intention of use of this in this film from his own travels. Mm. And that he basically thought it would be cool to then use it as like sort of a way of being inside people's heads that, um, but you know, I don't know that that completely works, but it's certainly bold. And the the sort of hallucinatory nature of some of the images, uh, the, the the indoor rainstorm, the, the those yeah. are you know he was being very very bold as a filmmaker, uh, and doing it within the context of yeah a B movie, and and he did that at other times in his career too, and, and you know Corman had some of that, but to me Fuller was even operating on a higher level of of sophistication in terms of political ideas and sophistication in terms of filmmaking. Within, like the, the like be, being very cheesy, and so it's like, yeah, in some ways the film falls short, and certainly it's dated. Although, to me, it's less dated again because of that sense of humor. Like, sure. if it took itself super seriously, I feel like I would be far more like, oh, I'm not comfortable with the way this is treating mental illness. I'm not comfortable with the way it's treating women. I'm not comfortable with the way. It's... But because it's so clearly saying, 
I'm making a B movie here, so I'm winking at you, but I'm also asking a lot of really important questions. To me, I'm much, I find for me at least, I'm much more able to forgive him where the film does feel dated and even politically questionable in terms of its sort of inferences about society. No, that's a great point. I, you know, again, like sometimes I feel like some movies do feel you do feel like you're in a bumper car, and it's just like, ooh, this is a, this is a lot to take when you're when you when you have different, yeah, you have the dark humor mixing in with the uh, yeah the political subtext or whatever, and you kind of want it to just be consistent, but not all films are because hey, life isn't consistent, and you have different feelings at different times, but this one is always stuck out to me as being a clear influence for a film that I absolutely love more and more. And it's Martin Scorsese's shutter Island. I absolutely adore that film. And it's a film that a lot of people kind of go, "Eh, doesn't quite work for me, (laughs) but another film about trauma and how, Somebody, yes. somebody who's yes. dealing and, and with I it. I know that Scorsese was a huge Fuller fan, so it's. I'm sure that was a uh, had a, had an influence. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, I think there's even. An, I think there's even an indoor rain sequence moment oh, yeah. In, oh, yeah. in Shutter Island. Actually, yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's yeah. That's turned into one of my favorites uh, over the years. Ah, so we got to get to one that we're a little mixed on. Yes. More than and more. more this than was most. my fault because I. I remembered it differently than than this was like literally like seeing it 35, 40 years later and going, oh, yeah, not what I remembered completely. Well, yeah, and and once again, watching this one, I couldn't help but, hmm, yes, the influence of European cinema is definitely trickling (laughs) to mainstream Hollywood productions more so than than ever, especially here. Uh, And, yeah, we have the delightful and charming Warren Beatty playing a successful comedian, but he's quite confused and neurotic at the same time. And is he suffering from a persecution complex of sorts? Like is someone or something, an external force out there threatening him or, you know, is he, are they really after him or is he just paranoid? That's kind of what the whole film yes. is circling yeah. around. And but I think this is a fascinating film that does. Oh, by the way, just just, just you, should, you should just probably identify because I don't think we have oh, actually sorry. said <laughs> Mickey <laughs> one <laughs> from nineteen sixty-five. And yeah, uh, a really powerful, interesting film that doesn't entirely work at the same time. Yes. So it's yeah, I just I, it does feel like it's all over the map. Uh, director Arthur Penn would obviously go on to great success with Warren Beatty years later for uh, obviously a film that was groundbreaking in, in, in a lot of ways and changed the face of cinema to, for years to come. But this one could have been a, a, a dry run of sorts. Mm-hmm. Or yeah, I mean. It doesn't entirely work, but I think people should still see it, especially for a couple of really great sequences. When he first um, uh, j- jumps aboard, you know, jumps from the train and enters the Chicago junkyard, I think that whole sequence is really cool. Uh, and when he's forced to audition in this empty auditorium surrounded by this black void, and all he has is this spotlight and this ominous voice out there somewhere. That whole sequence is pretty incredible, too. Uh, that, to me, that's the part I remembered when I said, there's this great movie we should see. That sequence mm-hmm. I, is is just fantastic because he's alone on stage, the spotlight's in his eyes, this voice is out there, and he's paranoid, but we have every reason to think he might be right, that there's going to be a shot that's going to ring out any second. 
You know, he's up there trying to tell gags. And he's pretty convinced, and we're not unconvinced, that they brought him there to kill him. And it's a very weird but very powerful sequence, both in this concept, but the way it's executed is beautiful, the way it's shot, uh, the, just the tension level is insanely high. Uh, and that sequence alone, I think, it makes the film worth seeing if you're just interested in filmmaking. And, you know, it's, 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 it's an amazing piece of filmmaking. Yeah, those moments in particular, and I mean, come on, Warren Beatty has a screen presence. He carries the thing because he's Warren Beatty, and he's channeling a little James Dean or Brando here and there. You know, at the time, he was most known for something like Splendor in the in the Grass, and to sort of lead, you know, his, his charisma in this sort of flashy tribute to French New Wave film noir and maybe a little uh, Kafka <laughs> to throw yes, in there. I, definitely. I, I wrote down Godard, Truffaut, Art, Kafka. Yep. <laughs> uh, very true. Very true. But, but it, it's funny because it does feel a bit like a young filmmaker and in his baby's case, a young ish producer actor doing those things. Yes. And it, it feels a bit of like an imitation of, as opposed to a leaping off from Godard and Truffaut and Kafka, you know, it feels a little sophomoric now looking at it again. Uh, some of the ambiguity feels a little forced. It feels like, you know, I think the thing about the, the new wave filmmakers, what it, that was second nature. It was what it was actually the way they saw the world mm -hmm. with this movie. I feel a little bit like somebody trying to do something cool. They saw somebody else do. Yeah. It didn't come across as completely natural. It felt a little forced and kind of, I don't know, self-aware about what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of very heavy-handed symbols. Yeah. And, you know, you kind of go, oh, my God, yeah, I got it. And there are other times where you go like, okay, I don't get it. What are you trying to do here? What is this? Um, you know, but but it's always interesting. Even when it doesn't work, I, 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 it's like not a film that bored me at all. I thought like certain things were a little cringy, like, oh, yeah, that's like, that feels like a bit like somebody's thesis movie that they made. Yeah. Um, but there's other moments that are spectacularly great. And, and like I say, it's never boring. It's beautifully shot. Uh, you know, I think it, it really captures something about urban jungles in its cinematography. Um, I, I love the opening shot. And I think is great. Mm -hmm. this, you know, the opening, which is Beatty sitting in a steam room, completely dressed in a bowler hat, surrounded by these creepy um, <laughs> old white guys who all look like mob members, laughing and laughing at him. But sort of, you know, it's as if his com it's sort of like maybe like some symbol of how he sees his comic life. Sure. That like he makes these people laugh, but the people he makes laugh are kind of horrifying and like, oh my god, I'm spending my life, you know, trying to please these kind of fat, creepy old rich white dudes who like will kill me in a second whether literally or figuratively um so it i, I mean it's interesting i just it, it just somehow it didn't all add up the way i remembered from when i saw it god knows how old it was in my early 20s maybe i don't know uh i remember thinking oh how profound and now i kind of go well, okay maybe not as profound as i thought yeah i wish i cared more about his character in general like i wish i had kind of a you know, an emotional response to whether or not he lives or dies or, you know, you know, being at least empathic towards his, you know, neuroses and just kind of like going, Oh, poor guy. I, 
just felt again like that that disconnect even though i'm like yes it's warren Beatty. of course i'm going to watch him do anything in the cinematography and this is pretty remarkable this was made at a time in uh chicago history when richard j daly was very resistant to having movies produced and filmed here so i wonder if that had something to do with the production like feeling a little off at times and it also makes that final shot kind of kind of profound in, in its own way. I do love the opening, like you mentioned. It almost made me think of something the Coen brothers might have done. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, and, and yeah, and, and here, that, that final shot, it's like, yeah, I wish you could have found a lot more substance and less of the style to really accompany everything. But, no, there are moments. And certainly, as someone who lives in Chicago, it's a, it's a great film at yes. times. It is a portrait of Chicago that I think maybe because of Daly, yeah, we don't have those cinema portraits of Chicago from that era that much. Right. A lot of films shot in New York, a lot of films shot in other places, but Chicago, which is you know one of the most interesting-looking cities in America, kind of is really underrepresented. And I'd forgotten the thing about Daly, but but it is something I'd heard that, yeah, they, they, he, there was not a lot of friendliness to film production. Uh, and that was too bad. And, it, and it's funny because I do think you could see this as a as a, as a dry run for uh, you know, for Bonnie and Clyde, which was just like two years later. And by that point, they found I feel like you know Arthur Pan and Beatty as a team did find their own voice. Yes. You know, they kind of and maybe they needed to do the film where they were imitating their heroes rather than doing their own thing. Like they needed to go through that to then on the next time out go okay, we're not imitating anybody. We're doing something that's completely ours. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I, yeah, I like it, you know, and certainly people even feel that way with, uh, oh, yeah, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson, he, he went from imitating his heroes like Altman and Scorsese to eventually finding his own voice. Yes. You know? I think that's true. Look, great, many, many, many great filmmakers don't start as great filmmakers with their first film. Some do, but, but a lot of people have to kind of feel their way a little bit before they can really break out with what's inside them. That's a great point. Um, I believe our next director for the film Seconds from 1966 had made another masterpiece before this one called The Manchurian Candidate, of course. Yes. But, um, wow. This, is a, this, this movie, to me, is never going to leave my brain. It's unbelievably dark and sad. And, uh, again, I, just take a drink, folks. I'm going to say the word unnerving. and this yeah this is like the epitome of unnerving from just the 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 opening cinematography like the cinematography in this is just unlike anything james wong how is like he should have just won every award imaginable because i think they were doing things with the camera that may haven't been done before not outside of purely experimental films this was the first taking of why you know fisheye lenses all i mean all there were all sorts of techniques that sure people had experimented with you know in three minute shorts or whatever but but building into a hollywood movie i mean a hollywood movie with with rock hudson in it (laughs) Uh, i I mean if you put this movie out today people would be freaked out by the cinematography people would go like oh my god it's one of the best shot films of the year and and, and it, it has lost nothing in 55 years in terms of its it's visual power and uniqueness. I mean, I've never seen a film that looked like it before or since. I've seen films that have stolen a, a given image here or there, but it is a unique 
just technical piece of filmmaking and and then it's spectacular on a storytelling level. Yeah, I remember when I first saw, you know, like the work of Spike Lee, particularly Do the Right Thing, I was always thinking like he 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 must have invented the body mounted camera, right? And the, <laughs> the the shots that look like they're on a Segway or something, you know? Uh no, I think they were originated before that. <laughs> Yeah, this is full of techniques that you may have seen since, but when you realize that nobody ever seen them in a movie with a major Hollywood star before this movie, mm-hmm. and, and even but it's just also a tonal thing. I mean, to me, this is David Lynch 20, 20 years before David Lynch made a movie. Oh yeah, I mean, there are so many scenes in this that are deeply creepy, and it's a mix. It's cinematography, but it's also performance, writing, ideas. Uh, you know, there's some of the scenes with Will Gear that are just, <sighs> I mean, yeah, it, it is one of the most visually disturbing films I've ever seen. I mean, it makes, it, it creeps you out from beginning to end, but there's a lot more than just creeping you out going on. I mean, yes, that is, but it's also very political. It's also saying things about men and middle age. And, and I definitely, this is a film I definitely understand at age 60 way, way more than I did at age 30. Uh, because... It's a film about grief of disappointment. It's a film about opportunities lost. It's a film about dreams that we'll, we'll never find. And, and so it's got a terrible sadness along with being one of the most effective paranoid thrillers ever, ever, ever made. Uh, I mean, without giving away anything specific, it, it has maybe the most disturbing last five minutes of any movie I've seen, period, ever, ever. Um, and that's a lot to jam into one movie. Yeah, and I definitely think this is one that a lot of listeners have probably sought out just because I, I've, I'm pretty sure I've brought it up, you know, even just within the past 10 or 12 years when I first saw it, I probably freaked out and just like went, this is pure nightmare fuel and I want you to see it <laughs> right away, people. Because, again, it, it, it does have those themes of like, you know, suburban materialism and you said the, you know, middle-aged midlife crisis for, for men and just like the struggle for an assured identity at a time when there is rapid change and clashing ideologies and sexual liberation <laughs> and, yeah. and grape stomping, which that whole sequence is insane. <laughs> and we still all, you know, 55 years later, we're still in a country where we grow up largely to fulfill roles that we're told we're supposed to. Right. And that a certain kind of affluence and success should make us happy. And then we get to some point in our life, often late in our lives, where we go, holy shit, I got those things and I kind of want to kill myself. Uh, and I think that that sort of desperate ennui has not changed all that much. I think a lot of surface things have changed, but I think, you know... I, and I think it was a problem that primarily men faced at that time because men were more of the workforce. I think now it's men and women more, much more equally. Mm-hmm. But that, that fact that there comes a point in your life that you look at all the things you've acquired and the bank account you acquired and the family you've put together because you're supposed to have this kind of a family and you suddenly go, none of it means anything to me. And then the film spins off of that to say, well, okay, then what if there was a company that let you be reborn and let you have a major plastic surgery and a new identity created and a false death created so you could be reborn. 
And yet, while that sounds like it could be like a, a mediocre TV series, by by approaching it with the kind of intelligence and complexity and visual brilliance and subtlety of writing and subtlety of performance, I mean, the whole film is full of like some of the best New York theater actors of that time, oh, yeah. um, who were not widely known to movie audiences, but were spectacular actors. You know, it takes this kind of somewhat obvious idea and takes you someplace that you just do not think you're going to end up. Yeah. It, it made me think of that. One of the saddest lyrics I ever heard from um, one of my favorite records, Wilco's Yankee hotel Foxtrot is the, is the line. I know I would die if I could come back new. <laughs> <laughs> and this movie really takes that literally and almost turns into a twilight zone episode, but done incredibly well with so much layers that yes, if you want to just look at this as like a, you know, sci-fi horror experience, you can look at it that way. It works on just that simplest of levels, but yeah, there is so much going on underneath the surface in this film. And it feels like this came out at a time too, when people were probably like, uh, I'm here to escape reality. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I'm not ready for this. Yeah. That's a good point, and it's probably why I don't think the film did did uh, commercially all that well, because I don't know that people wanted to deal with that. They probably uh, they probably didn't want to see Rock Hudson in this kind of role. That's for sure. Yes. Yeah. Well, and that's what is so interesting. I mean, use, the use of Hudson, and I'm sure that's probably part of what helped him get the financing. But he's not the obvious guy to see. But I think it's actually one of his very best performances. I agree. I mean, he's very. I, one of the things that really struck me rewatching it was how good and subtle he is. And like I say, he's surrounded by, you know, uh, people like John Randolph who plays the before version of him and Marie Hamilton and Jeff Corey. I mean, all these like really world-class brilliant actors and he really holds his own with them. Uh, you don't feel like, Oh, he's the star guy that they, that they threw in. And, and, and I think very much to his credit or Frankenheimer's credit and working with him, uh, there's a subtlety in the pain that, that rock Hudson carries with him in the film that I don't associate with him as an actor. You know, I, I mean, I think he's a fine sort of movie star screen presence, but this was like, whoa, there's, there's a lot more going on in this performance than, than you think of with, with him. Yeah, I agree. And he really dedicated himself to it. I know people sort of frown upon the method acting approach, but Hey, he played some scenes actually drunk and remained that way for three days to film that party sequence. <laughs> wow. I didn't know that, but that kind of makes sense. And it's amazing. I mean, I, I wonder if if what we're seeing, and this is projecting into somebody else's psychology, but but being gay at a time where it was literally would have been the death of his career if mm. people knew outside of a very small coterie of people in Hollywood, you know, that sense of feeling like an outsider in your own skin, that sense of feeling like you have to hide in plain sight. I mean, a lot of the things that are themes in this movie, I wonder if connected deeply for him because of his own real life. Oh, that's a great point. Yeah. That adds a whole other level to, to that movie. That, well, yeah. that one struck me watching it this time. I'm like, oh my God, this is a whole film about a man trying to pretend to be somebody else so that he can be seen as desirable and successful. And, Accepted. and like, yeah. what an interesting thing for Rock Hudson to be making a movie about how that fails. Mm. Yeah, no, I guess yeah, it does feel like a very personal film for probably everybody involved and yet it's very human and very sad and shocking and all the things you want from 
you know, a, a challenging but ultimately <clears throat> rewarding experience that, again, use the word existential quite a bit, but, you know, here I think it's, it's, it's quite apt when you think yes. of some of the scenarios presented in a lot of existential writing. <laughs> yes, no, this is, what is self existential movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, why don't you lead the conversation for our next one? Because it was one that you brought up to me that I'm surprised I haven't heard of or seen before myself. Talk a little bit about the incident from 1967. When did you first see it? Uh, I saw it. I first saw it in a very, I'm sure, edited version on late night TV uh, as a kid in New York. Uh, you know, that was, I, I mean, I'm old enough that I, a lot of the films I was exposed to, you know, I was before the the era of VHS even, much less DVD or, you know, I wasn't from a time where you could pick and choose what movies you'd see. There was a couple of revival houses and, you know, maybe a movie you're interested in would show up one year, maybe it wouldn't. Um, so a lot of my early film going was turning on the, my 12-inch black and white television, you know, at one in the morning when my parents were asleep and I couldn't sleep. <laughs> And this was one of the movies I saw that way. And, and I'm sure it was probably chopped up and boulderized and I was seeing it in an awful way on a 12 inch screen. And, you know, but luckily it was black and white. So at least that was correct. Um, but I remember being really freaked out by it and chilled by it and moved by it. Um, you know, and seeing it now, it's like, yeah, there are flaws. There are definitely places where it basically the story is a very simple concept it, it, to and it's from a play. That's what I to, thought. <laughs> yep. To uh, which, you, which you can tell at times, which is where it's a little bit the weaknesses can be. Mm -hmm. Two kind of punky young guys, but violent punky young guys, get on a New York City subway train deep in the night. It's like two thirty in the morning, three in the morning, and proceed to terrorize everybody on the train, but confronting each of them with their own, you know, their own humanity. I mean, which is a very theatrical conceit. I mean, they don't just get on the train and start punching people and stealing their money. Each character they kind of take down on their own terms, um, and but it, but what I appreciate of the film is it acknowledges the theatrical conceit. It's not it's not trying. To, I don't. I think the film isn't trying to pretend it's naturalistic real life. It's kind of going. We're this is a metaphoric story, and we're not. You know, we're using this as an a chance to examine human behavior. We're not saying this is exactly what it'd be like if these guys really did this. Yeah, it's very heightened um, in that way, right? And I think a lot of credit goes because the writing can be clunky, but it can also be brilliant. Uh, I mean, it kind of has a mix. There are scenes that are super powerful um, and there are scenes that are like a little like, OK, that's two on the nose. But the performance, some of the performances are really spectacular. Tony Masante um, and a very young Martin Sheen are the punks. And I think both of them are great uh, uh, Tony Masante is someone I'm like, he should, have, he should have been huge. He is phenomenal in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, he, because he's a d completely despicable, horrible human being terrorizing a bunch of people on a train. And yet you have moments of empathy with him. And yet at times when he's bringing somebody, <coughs> excuse me, when he's bringing somebody down for their own hypocrisy or whatever, in spite of your hating him, you get the point he's making. And it's a really hard role in that sense because if he's not really awful, I mean really terrible, the film doesn't work. But if you don't – but if you dismiss him as a monster and not a human being only, um, the film also doesn't work. And he is 
really disturbing in the movie. He's scary. He's surprising. He's you don't know what you know what he's going to do next. Um, so you're in that same position as all the people in that subway car of like, is he going to pull out a gun and just kill somebody? Is he going to say, okay, good night, everybody, and walk off the train? You just don't know what's coming. And it's a really galvanizing performance. And 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 Martin Sheen keeps up with him in a quieter way. He's kind of the he kind of plays his sort of you know uh, slightly quieter uh, wingman. You know, right. goes along. Mm-hmm. But then some of the other performances, like Brock Peters is amazing in the movie. He plays this black guy who understandably hates white people, but so much that he's lost touch with his own humanity. Mm. Um, and that's a really complicated character. Bo Bridges is in it. He's great. He plays this like Southern soldier who's on the, and he's got a broken arm. So he's kind of vulnerable physically, but you know, he's also, uh, you know, young and strong and he's looking at these two guys going, do I get involved? Do I not get involved? Where's the limit? What's the point? You know, so these wonderful performances really take it up a level. And then I also think Larry Pierce's direction does. Because he kind of does, again, to go back to the you know, last time, there's a, there's a semi-improvisational feel to a lot of it, which apparently from what I can read about it, actually it was a lot of stuff was sort of improvised. Um, and that really helps between that and the cinematography that has a kind of jittery, Cassavetes-ish sort of feel to it, really helps offset the theatricality of it. Um, if you'd shot it in a more straightforward, classic way, I think it would have felt unbearably like, oh, we're watching a film play. But because it kind of feels like you're watching a documentary where the dialogue is more theatrical, it, it's got a, it, there's a contrast there. And I think that really, really helps it work. Yeah, the cinematography from uh, Gerald Hirschfield <laughs> would go on to shoot uh, Young Frankenstein, very different movie, oh, uh, but incredibly well shot. Uh, yeah, you mentioned it having a documentary, almost cinema verite feel, and yet there's like that heightened pulp novel kind of quality to the dialogue, and yet somehow it all works, you know, without feeling like tonal whiplash in the way that, you know, other films can. So it, yeah, I mean, I could see why this was a play, and I could see it being very effective as a play, and. Ooh, it's just so uncomfortable to watch and experience, and yet you you put yourself in this position, especially if you do. I happen to ride uh, the, the the train to work almost every day, uh, and when you see different people from all walks of life together get to better get again together in a confined space, and you know if it's really hot and humid out, that plays a role, and there are, there have been times of tension. You know, between sure. people who are different for one reason or another, they're having a bad day, or they're just racist assholes, uh, any number of things. Yeah. So watching this almost like just brings you again into that experience of uh, groundedness and uh, relatability, yet there, you mentioned it feeling very, very heightened in, in how a lot of these people interact with one another. That's very true, too. Uh there, there are moments where I'm like, yeah, I think somebody should be reacting more. But again, I think in these situations, people just don't want to get involved. And so they stay quiet. And that that is really addressed here as well. You know, oh, so, that's a lot of, I think, what the film is about. That yeah. kind of your Kitty Genovese thing of like, yeah, I'm not going to risk my safety to help somebody else. Mm-hmm. Even though that ultimately puts yourself at more risk. And that's one of the things that, you know, that the film really is about that too, that idea of like, you know, 
oh, I'm not going to stand up for the old guy. I'm not going to stand up for the black guy. I'm not going to stand up because why should I risk myself? It's like, well, you're pretty much guaranteeing that you're going to be next on the list. Yeah. No, exactly. It's like even even a boyfriend, you know? I'm just kind of yes. like, come on, man. Do something. Say something. Stand up. You know, but who knows when you're in that situation what you're feeling on the inside and how torn Well, and that's the great thing is it, the film also does feel not judgmental or not simplistically judgmental mm-hmm. because you – I found, yeah, a lot of the behavior of the various people on the train not helping other people on the train awful. And I also recognize, and you know what? I don't know what I would do. And that's, I think, very powerful in a film. When you go, this is terrible behavior. Would I be any better? I think that's a really strong <laughs> thing for a film to do. Yeah. No, that's a great, great call there. I mean, you can think of it as a social commentary of the issues of the time, but also it's, it's an examination of how society still works. And again, sadly, to this day, in, in terms of, yes, not wanting to get involved with, you know, these types of situations and maybe it's a protective measure, but I, I, I don't know. There are, there have definitely been moments where in life you, you do feel regret if you don't say something or if you don't stand up or if you don't intervene. Oh, there are times I look back at incidents from my own youth when I didn't intervene to help somebody else or even for myself. Where it's sure. like, you know, I mean, when that when I got mugged, you know, maybe I should have tried. I'm because like, or I could have ended up dead. But there's a, you know, there's a human thing of like, how do you ever know when to be what kind of person? Um, there's also a great moment in this that is so I've forgotten about it, and it's and you may need to edit it out because it's near the end of the movie. Although it's really not the plot of the movie at all. It just, but it, it's so relevant to right now. And it so captures like how things haven't changed. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is again a film that's forty-five years old, and or fifty-five, whatever the fuck it is now. Um, you know, at the end of the movie, you know, there's this whole you know, there's been this whole drama, and a cop comes into the subway car because oh. there's been a problem. And what does he do? Immediately goes to the black guy, meaning yep. that he was the problem. Oh. And it only lasts the whole thing lasts ten seconds, and it's so disturbing and so powerful because it's like okay, we've come no distance. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a brilliant touch. And apparently uh, I heard Pierce talk about it and say that was, again, something that was basically improvised. That wasn't written. But to me, it's one of the most powerful things in the movie because that's how you know it. That actually would be that way. You know, it's like here's this whole incident. We've spent the whole movie watching these two white punks, you know, terrorizing a color car full of people. A cop rushes in and immediately goes to the black guy and goes, okay, put your hands up. It's like... And I just thought, oh man, that is 1967, and it's always, and it's also 2022. Uh, yeah, I know. That's what gets frustrating, especially when, with things, with things, how they've been recently. It's just been so upsetting, time and time again, on a political level, sociological level, on a human level. That when you go back and watch something like this, that sort of reinforces the fact that you know, yeah, we're. we're Humanity is kind of lost in a lot of cases, in a lot of situations like this. And, you know, again, this could, in, in somebody else's hands, this could have been like a, you know, like a towering inferno or a disaster movie. Where, <laughs> you know, like, oh, these terrorizers, they're going to do all these horrible things. And it's, yeah, and it's, but it's, again, a sociological study uh, in, in a way that also made me think of, um, Particularly one sequence, but probably the entirety of a movie I need to see again because I've only seen it once. But Michael Haneke's uh, Code Unknown. 
Oh, I've never seen it. Yeah, I've been I've been meaning to go back to that because I wasn't sure how I felt about it on the first viewing. But I'm I'm pretty sure he must have seen this movie because there's again a, 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 a I believe it's Juliette Binoche on a subway ride being harassed. Ah, and nobody's doing anything about it for like a, a extended period of time. But it's, it's been a while since I've seen it. And this, yeah, this was a great discovery that um, I'm, I'm going to be picking up the Blu-ray of. I believe there's commentary and other features on it. Yeah, there's some interesting stuff on there. And that's where I got the thing where Pierce was talking about the way they had done it and that the moment with the cops and the black guy on the on the car, you know, that that he talks about the whole uh, he's pretty he's pretty articulate about the, the history of making it, which mm. is it was really interesting. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I would love to learn more about it. Um, so. The next film, so this is actually in my top 10 favorite films, (laughs) and that is Point Blank by John Borman, 1967, a crime film that centers on a character named Walker, played by Lee Marvin, who is a criminal that is seeking vengeance when um, his friend and partner in crime double-crosses him after a robbery uh, that takes place on Alcatraz Island. And his friend shoots him at point-blank range, leaving him for dead in one of the prison cells. And he manages to survive those gunshot wounds, or does he? (laughs) (laughs) And that's the thing. You mentioned David Lynch earlier. And I, to some degree, what I love about movies is when they play like a fever dream. When you can't necessarily say this means that or this means this that it's it, it kind of flows together in this fluid manner but yet it <laughs> i always said too if i were to teach a class on editing i would show them this movie because i'd never seen editing like this i don't think yes. uh up until i saw this movie and clearly uh, a film <laughs> a filmmaker like steven soderbergh would go on to use this type of editing to great effect with his film the limey which is very similar and very inspired by this movie no doubt uh and yet it's all mysterious it's all ambiguous it's all unknown if this is really happening or not and yet at the same time you can certainly think of it as happening in reality but yeah, there's there's that sequence in the Go Go Club where he's he goes looking for a friend uh, of his wife's sister, I believe, and there's that moment where Angie Dickinson just slaps the shit out of Lee Marvin, <laughs> and he yeah, barely. Well, what's kind barely of amazing flinches. is that it doesn't matter in a way if it's real or not. I mean, it matters at the end of the movie, but it's an amazing piece of storytelling that works either way you interpret it, whether it yes. is the last moments of this man's life after his best friend and wife betray him in the middle of a robbery. And this is his fantasy of getting, trying to get his own back or whether it really is what happened. It's equally powerful. So while that's a really good, it's a really interesting question. It's not just the movie isn't like a gimmick movie where, and the question is, is it real or not? It's like, it's just one more layer of what makes it a great movie. And that's to me, the difference between something feeling like a gimmick and feeling like, just part of the richness of it. Yeah. It's just, it's kind of eerie in spots. Like, and Lee Marvin is more of a cipher. It's kind of just cause he doesn't emote a whole lot. He could be a ghost. <laughs> you know, but uh, there's motion underneath it, which is part of what I love about yeah, it. Yeah. There's it's, a sadness I there. Yeah. Think it's one of his best performances because I mean, actually he gave a lot of great performances, but 
this was a really great, you know, because he, he, he plays a guy who wants to be that guy we see in movies, the man alone, the man who is the lone tough guy who's affected by nothing. And yet he and Borman find just enough moments where you see the cracks mm-hmm. to go, he's in pain. He's not going to let people know he's in pain. He's not going to, he's going to macho his way through it. But I mean, to me, the film is because in a way there, again, the plot's very common, straightforward. It's like, I, you know, I've been betrayed and I'm going to get revenge. But it's, it's that echoed through stylistic choices that are like out of the European art films. And unlike the Beatty film, where it felt, you know, forced on it. Here you've got echoes of Godard and Bergman I saw and Truffaut and Antonioni. And and yet it doesn't feel like, oh, I'm copying somebody else's techniques. It feels like I'm using those techniques to take a classic American noir kind of story and go way, way deeper and deal with much bigger themes. And, and, and to me, it's a really a movie about, you know, America, we've grown up with the idea of the idealization of the lone tough guy. Mm. Um, and this movie is about just how painfully alone and lonely it is to be that guy and how pointless being an individualist can be in a modern world where even crime is no longer run by, you know, guys in the street, but guy, corporate guys in suits. Yeah. Like the organization in this movie isn't the mafia. It's like a Fortune 500 company. So it's like to me, it's this kind of this guy who's like this anachronism and this really sad anachronism trying to retain a sense of honor in a world where honor doesn't have meaning anymore. And to me, that's a lot of thematic baggage for essentially what seems like a noir story. Yeah. It almost comes full circle. If we want to go, if you go back to blast of silence, because another film about loneliness and fatalism and just the futility of, you know, accomplishing something that you think is going to have meaning. Like he, yes. he really does think, oh, if I just get this money back, that'll complete me. That'll at least resolve all of this mess that I've been put through. And yet in the end, that doesn't. And that's kind of what's amazing about the way this film ends. And I don't necessarily want to fully give it away, but it's, again, big question marks are left at the end. There isn't a sense of satisfaction with the character and for the audience. And I think that's what (laughs) leaves some people frustrated because a revenge thriller, you expect things to go a certain way. You expect Mm -hmm. everything to work out in the end for our, for our protagonist. And when that doesn't happen, you're putting his mind mindset, his headspace at that time, because it, to me, it also can be viewed as this meditation on trauma and what he's experienced and what he's been through and the fact that he's lost his wife and he can't really fully connect with other human beings after what he's been through. So, yeah, again, really sad. <laughs> this movie yeah. really feels sad in the end. It's a tremendously emotional movie that you do not think is going to be a tremendously emotional movie. Exactly. And that's always very interesting to me. Like when you're watching a movie, like, like I, the first time I saw it, I was, was so taken off guard by how complicated it was emotionally and thematically. Because, you know, for the first while you go, oh, I know what this is. It's a really well done revenge thriller. And then it just goes deeper and deeper and deeper into some psychological places that are wildly more interesting than that. And even its commentary on how the world works is wildly more interesting than that. And in some ways I gained a lot more on repeated viewings because the first time you watch it, you're busy trying to figure out the plot because that's what we do with a movie like that. Like what's going to happen and who betrayed who. And and that's understandable. But then once you've seen it and you know all those things, 
it's almost like on the other later viewings that I went, oh my God, there's so much I didn't even catch the first time around mm-hmm. because I was busy trying to figure out, well, is that person on his side? And it's like, oh, none of that's even the point here. It's something way deeper than that. Yeah, and the chronology feels off because of the editing techniques. I mean, if it feels less like a narrative and, and, and more like a nightmare at yes. times. You know, and I, th- yes. I, I, and I think this has been done in other ways. I think even there's a 1999 remake called Payback, if I'm not mistaken, with Mel Gibson. Oh, which I never saw, but I do believe is, was either inspired by or a remake of, yes. Yeah, I think it was. I think it was based on the same source material. But again, that's the more straightforward approach, whereas this is really audacious and downright experimental in execution at times to where it is a little jarring. Like the first time I saw it, I was like, I'm not sure if my brain can quite keep at it with this film because I'm wanting to compartmentalize or piece the puzzle together in a way that I can make sense of, but there is, it's more about the emotion. It's more about the themes and it's more about this lost, lonely character who has been through a lot. And, you know, I can see some people going, well, I don't know if I can completely connect with him either because he's not, he's not emoting, but I, I, I really do think it was a collaboration between Borman and Marvin to sort of give it some emptiness. Cause there's times when he's not replying at all to people. He's just mm-hmm. sitting there thinking in deep thought or w- when he goes and, you know, shoots the bed the way he does. Yeah. There's just like this empty sadness t- because he didn't get to do what he wanted to do. And it's, 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 it sort of captures exactly what the film's about. It's, it's, it's going to leave you empty. Like the futility of revenge again is something that I keep going back to with a lot of films where I go, that's a great theme that I always find fascinating to explore. And here it does it beautifully. And it's something that I go back to probably once a year at this point, it's become, yeah, like I said, one of my very favorite movies ever. Well, and what I love about it is it's the futility of revenge, but through a a specific lens of about a time and place, like a futility Mm. of revenge in the modern world where honor isn't even part of it anymore. Like, you could get revenge if revenge restored your honor or whatever, you know. But in a world that's a corporate world, in a world where the $93,000 that he's obsessed with getting is chump change to a lot of people he ends up dealing with, it's like it becomes absurd because it's like, what revenge are you going to get? And that's part of what's so powerful about it is, like, it's also about how the world has changed, not just his own experience. But yeah. this is a guy when, you know, getting back yours after being turned on and getting your $93,000 back, it's like would have this real meaning. And part of what there's, again, exist, this whole existentialist thing of like, like, what is it? But in this world, in this modern world, what does it mean? No, that's a great point because there's a lot of, there's a lot of emphasis on the cityscape, like skyscrapers and viaducts and just, yeah, like how things have just changed environmentally, you know, there's just these, you know, sort of confined offices and weird homes. And it's, it feels just like a movie out of time and he's out of time. (laughs) Like he's just, he's not going to connect with this new world that he's surrounded by. And and yeah, I just, I think Borman said that Renoir was an influence, but I was thinking of the, um, ah, the director who did, uh, last night at Miriam Bad and she oh, Renee, t- uh, 
I'm never sure how you're supposed to pronounce it. Rene, Alain Rene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that director, that sort of approach to editing is there. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. It's like this American, very American revenge, you know, robbery story as if done by an, a European art master. Mm-hmm. And so it's this fascinating mix of truly an art film and truly a down and gritty Don Siegel thriller, like somehow wedded together seamlessly. Yeah. It, <laughs> it's like they both went into the uh, teleportation devices from the fly. Yes. <laughs> In some ways that really shouldn't work. I mean, really that this is one of those films that like, if somebody described to you what it was doing or trying to do, you'd kind of go, oh, that sounds weird and clunky. And yet it's seamless and it flows so beautifully and it just works. I mean, I agree with you. I think it's a, a, a truly masterful movie. Yeah, and definitely, if you, I'm, I'm sure you, <laughs> you being you and the cinephile that you are, you probably have heard the commentary with Steven Soderbergh on this. I have actually not listened to it yet. I oh. would I, 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 it takes me forever to get to commentary, so I just want to watch the movie. Sure, like, I understand. <laughs> I, I love commentaries, but I start putting on I go, and I start with the commentary and go, and I go, you know what, I'm just going to watch the film again. So I have not heard a lot of the, the really good commentaries, although I've heard this is a really good commentary. It's a very good commentary, absolutely. And Steven Soderbergh, clearly a masterful filmmaker who would go on to uh, basically pay homage to this, and then some with Terrence Stamp in The Limey, like I mentioned. Which yes. Is, which is another another favorite of mine. So maybe wonderful. I, film. And, yeah. and definitely it's funny. I had not thought about the connection because well, I hadn't also listened to the, but when you say it, I can absolutely see it. I absolutely get the, 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 how the, the, uh, the, the passing of the baton on that one. Yeah. Well, I don't, I also don't want to keep you too long. Um, I'm doing, I'm actually doing okay. Uh, <laughs> did you want to talk about one more? I had, I had said I, I could only do so long because I had to help my wife make dinner and everything, but but she's caught up on something a project of hers. So if we take a little more time, it's not not going to be a, a problem. Oh, good um, to hear. But yeah, I mean, one thing I just as a little side note, I mm. just noticed because um, you were talking about, and this is a place that you and I are very similar. Uh, how much you love films that are dreamlike and that take you into that kind of alternate reality dream space and i'm looking at this list and going that's basically at least to <laughs> some degree every movie on, that we've just discussed yeah and why david lynch is in my top five favorite directors <laughs> yes because i mean some of these are more grounded in reality but none of these films feel like naturalistic you know the way life works they feel like a a poetic and dreamlike and disturbing and slightly out of control reinterpretation of reality. And, and I hadn't really realized that about that until we got to the end of the conversation about them all and going, wow, okay, there, that's the theme that, that ties these all together. And we never set out to do that. It just sort of happens organically no. that way. That, no, that's what's so interesting. I, I, I always think it's interesting after you do something like this to go, oh, wait a minute, there's a theme there. Yeah, and and I know you only directed um, one episode of the of the show Legion, but <laughs> that's that's a show that consistently felt dreamlike and not oh absolutely and you couldn't easily interpret every event that was taking place or again if it was really happening or not. Yes, 
which is yes, what I is. really appreciated about that show. And Noah Hawley in general kind of brings that quality more often than not. And maybe that's why yeah, he's Margo perfect. Me has a really lovely sort of dreamlike. Yeah. Oh, it, it ain't naturalistic reality. And well, as like the Coen brothers, which is what inspired the Fargo series. I mean, you know, there's a lot of filmmakers that have a, a lot of the great filmmakers. That's part of what their genius is, is creating a, an alternate reality that still speaks to our reality. And that, that I think is really hard to do, but I think it's one of the things that film does better than any other medium. Couldn't agree more. Um, there are some honorable mentions that I wanted to bring up and including, did you get to see a married couple by chance? I did not. I apologize. That's that okay. Suggested, and I'm sure given the fact that you and I are so tracking each other's taste that I can't imagine I won't like it. I just didn't get the time to sit down and watch it. That's okay. It's definitely, again, very harrowing, very difficult to watch at times. There's, it's a very cinema verite approach to documentary storytelling involving a married couple living in uh, Toronto, I believe. And you basically just watch, they don't acknowledge the camera is there. It, it's funny that we brought up, uh, I believe it was uh, in our last conversation, Albert Brooks's real life, and this oh, right. and this is like what what Albert Brooks probably intended to, or you know, his character wanted to capture was just people living day to day and seeing them interact, seeing them having breakfast, you know, dealing with a dirty diaper, you know, dealing with their kids and dealing with everyday events in this very. Ooh, uh, vulnerable and incredibly naked, literally at times with these characters. Like you, you, you watch them, you watch them intimate, um, and, ex and experience marital conflict in ways that will feel very familiar to a lot of people who, you know, have lived with somebody for a long period of time. I mean, there are definite moments where you don't necessarily like what either of them are doing, uh, but just so it's such a raw film. It does feel like a Cassavetti's <laughs> approach to filmmaking. Once again, only it's pure documentary about two real people uh, dealing with everyday things like, you know, Oh, should I buy this piano or not? Should I invest in this thing or not? Or, you know, just like they just have regular everyday conversations that couples do have. And they definitely argue quite a bit. And the question in the end ultimately becomes, are they good for one another? And the film doesn't answer that. And it's incredibly powerful. It's one of my favorite documentaries probably. And, and it's, it's amazing because it sounds like from what you're saying that it really doesn't feel like the, it, it actually works as a fly on the wall documentary, despite how inside someone's very personal life you are. Mm -hmm. I mean, cause like there's like things like an American family, which I think is fascinating, but like that piece, I feel like you always are aware that they're aware that there's a camera there. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's, it's a really good, you know, question as to, are they, you know, acting for the camera at times? You know, I mean, they don't look at the camera or ever acknowledge that there's a crew there in any sort of way. Uh, you know, there's, there's a certain moment where they, they probably are, you know, drunk and dancing to Sergeant Pepper and 
you know, something adorable like that that automatically makes me think of my parents <laughs> doing something like that late at night together. That's that's really endearing, but also just yeah, you know, just showing the dark side of being married and in ways that you know I do often wonder about the editing of something like that. How do you sit down and decide? Well, this should go. This should stay. This scene is boring. This one isn't. And how does this? How do you tell a story? without a story in mind. Like, do you, you know, documentary filmmakers probably just find that right. In the same way that we well, find I, themes when we talk. I, I never made a documentary, but my wife's produced a couple of them. So I've sort of been around them by proxy. And it was amazing how to watch that process. It's a very different, pro- at least in those cases, it's a very different process than when you do a, a fictional film or a scripted film where you have this blueprint. And then it's all about how you're going to treat that blueprint and you change things in editing, but, but you're coming in knowing what that is as opposed to just having tens and hundreds of thousands of feet of footage or in the video age, the equivalent of that. And then only in the editing room over time, really sorting out what it is the full story of that film is. And, and it, it certainly the two films that she did, the editing process was far longer and more involved than the editing process on a narrative film. While the shooting process was actually shorter. I mean, you know, but it was all about gathering as much footage as possible and then really just taking all the time you needed to fully – it's like that thing they used to say about sculpture being you know, hidden in the marble and then <laughs> chip away the marble until you reveal the sculpture. Um, that's what the editing certainly looked like to me on, on a documentary was like chipping away that marble until the form underneath was revealed, uh, which was pretty amazing to, to see. And And – that I'm sure that's what they did with this. I'm sure they probably had hundreds of hours. And, you know, getting that down to two is a really amazing piece of artistic work. Yeah. And, and somebody like Frederick Wiseman is just constantly doing that, but pro- probably making his films very long for a reason. I mean, he does have, you know, probably hundreds of hours of footage, but manages to make a compelling story, even if it's well over three hours or something like that. So... Um, I'm sure the director of A Married Couple, Alan King, has made quite a few of those types of stories that I'll eventually catch up on. I know Criterion sort of put them out as a collection of some kind that I've been meeting yeah, to seek out. Yeah, it was part of their Eclipse um, collection. Right, right. You know, it was DVD, but like, you know, where they would do that, where they would take a lesser known filmmaker and put like five films in a box set. Um, and that's, I think, still floating around out there. Yeah, or people can find on the crit- I think it's streaming on the Criterion channel if they have that. So oh, seek, that, seek, good... seek that out for sure. Um, I think I uh, I brought this up when we last talked that I, <laughs> that we were going to have a conversation about it, but I have in, in various capacities before, and that would be Bob Rafelson's head featuring the monkeys. Oh yes, <laughs> <laughs> which is I, that's one that I have not revisited in years. But man, what an entertaining film! Yeah, I almost feel like we could have thrown it in here in the mix just for some levity. <laughs> and, and arguably perhaps should have. Yeah. Because uh, it, it certainly, although it would have fit the theme I was talking about of dreamlike alternate mm-hmm. reality. It's just, in that case, it's a really funny dreamlike alternate reality. Oh, for sure. And, of course, The Swimmer by uh, Frank Perry, which I did an extended bonus episode featuring... Um, film historian Sergio Mims. That's also one of those that I've seen three times and has now become an all-time favorite with uh, a transcendent performance from Burt Lancaster. 
And is that is that is that up yet? Your 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 PC didn't because I'd actually yeah. be very curious to hear it. Oh yeah, yeah, it's out, and I'll send it your way for sure. Oh cool. I, yeah, I, no, I'd love to hear that. You come up <laughs> at one point. Um, oh, it's, I think you told me that. <laughs> yeah, I think I sent you a quick clip of him you mentioning did, that. Yeah, did, but I didn't know that that meant. I didn't know if the whole thing was done, and I'd be very curious to, to listen to it because I know how much you love that movie and. And, and I have not seen it since I was literally like 19 years old, 18 years old. And I remember thinking it was amazing, but I hardly remembered it at all. So I was thinking of like listening to your piece and then going and rewatching it. Or if you suggest, I'll rewatch it and then listen to your piece. I would, I would go that way. I would definitely go that route again. Okay. Very dreamlike <laughs> at times. A little surreal, kind of like, I mean, just because, yeah, again... I, I would say that yes, everything is happening in that reality, but it's just such a such an odd reality he's living and going to these different places and swimming in these different pools and having it all have uh, yes again sociological commentary throughout uh, about class and the potential that yes this character is having another mental breakdown. Uh, so that's a heavy movie, but well worth your time. Uh, Targets by the great Peter Bogdanovich. Um, have you seen that one? Yes, I have seen that uh, probably three times maybe over the yeah. years. That's again uh, a really uh, unsettling thriller. Yes, that, yes. Oh, that... and, and for me, I, I have some mixed feelings. I don't know that I think it completely works. I feel like the integration of the different strands sometimes don't mix as well. But I think it's so interesting for what it what it's trying to do on a thematic level and on a practical level and, uh, you know <laughs> it's you know because so much of that was devised around whatever they had like three days with uh um uh what's Bor- his name Boris uh, Karloff yeah that like you they had to design the movie around this like very strange specific reality and I feel like they pulled it off surprisingly well there are times I feel aware of it um but it is the 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 more to me serious parts of it the 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 just portrait of a guy who is a sniper is are very powerful. Oh, for sure. Everything that takes place at that drive-in too is nail biting, <laughs> to say the yeah. least. <clears throat> um, and a couple more really quickly, but two titles that have come up on this show mainly. Geez, I don't know. Quite a while ago, when I my I had my co-host and friend Patrick on, but. Um, both of these were brought to our attention, and we've championed them quite a bit. Uh, again, Frank Perry with Last Summer, featuring Bruce Davison and Barbara Hershey in another really dark coming-of-age movie. It's like the dark, the dark side of a Swedish love story, which we talked about yeah. last time. Uh, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a really depressing, upsetting film. Again, probably would have been too heavy to throw in this mix. Uh, and it's also hard to find, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I was not able to find a reasonably good cop. It's a film I saw when I was a kid, but really a kid. Like, I was probably too young to see it. Like, I was probably like 14 or 15. And it's, you know, it's it's a disturbing movie. Although 14 or 15, I guess you can handle that stuff. But um, but I've never been able to find a reasonably good copy of it ever. I mean, you know, usually, sometimes you see find films like that will show up on YouTube or whatever. And, yeah, it won't be the greatest copy. But, like, I, the only things I found are so ugly and and missing checks and whatever that I've never re-seen it because I've never had it felt like I've had a chance to really re-see it in good quality. Yeah. I think the only way Patrick got a copy of it at the time was through 
I think they played it on the TCM channel, if I'm not mistaken. He DVR'd it. Oh, that would have been the way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and Ebert was a huge fan of that film and, you know, went on record as saying, like, yeah, if you want to see the, the ultimate, <laughs> the, the be- pro- possibly the best Barbara Hershey performance ever. I think she was even nominated for it, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but, yeah, it's, 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 you have to be in a certain, you have to be prepared emotionally for, for that story. Well, it just captures the nightmare dark side of adolescence, mm-hmm. which is always a powerful, and again, does it in a somewhat dreamlike way. I remember, I, read, I think I read the novelization of it when I was young, too. Like, oh, wow. And I thought, because, you know, from, of course, from that perspective, of my, from my being like 14, there was this weird mixed feeling about it being horrifying, but also these were the cool kids. Sure. You know, they were having sex and they were doing drugs and all the things I wasn't quite in that world yet. So I had there was that weird sort of titillation and revulsion thing that you would get from that perspective that I'm sure I would have a completely different experience with, you know, now, you know, 45 years later, I'm sure I would, those titillation elements would be gone and I would just be feeling, oh my God, this is really rough. Yeah. Let's get one of those uh, great boutique, boutique labels out there. Your imprint, your, uh, yeah, it's sort of surprising now that you say that, that somebody hasn't. You know, that, that an MVD or there's a lot of like interesting labels out there that are doing that stuff. And it has enough controversial uh, material that you feel like, oh, you could sort of sell it. Like, you, you know, the, the dark sex and violence sort of side of it. Um, you, you know, you could definitely sort of find an, 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 an you know, it's a film that, that there would be an audience for on that kind of cheesy selling it level. Uh, you know, sometimes with older films that are dramas, it's hard because people go like, well, who's going to buy it? But that film had enough of a reputation and, and, you know, I will, hopefully somebody, some, hopefully somebody's listening and are taking, taking your word for it. Yeah. Maybe you could send a note to indicator. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I actually, this is not a bad idea because I do know people at some of those companies and I don't know, I, I have never, I've never really done that thing of you should put this out, but I, I suppose I should take advantage of having those connections. <laughs> And see if I could ever influence it. Yeah, for sure. And uh, last but not least, The Servant from Joseph Losey with uh, Dick Borgard? Or, yeah, that's Dirk. Dirk Borgard. Dirk. Yes. D- Dick was his less famous brother. Was, uh... <laughs> yeah, though, that's a... Whew, talk about um, power dynamics at play, to say the least, in The Servant. Uh, that's an understatement. Another film I am way overdue to re-see. Another mm-hmm. film I saw when I was first falling in love with film, like late teens, whatever, and remember images and scenes, but I am so due to actually see it again to be able to say anything intelligent about it. I think it was actually put out in 4K in the UK recently. Yes, I actually ordered it. <gasps> I think I have a copy of it here. I just haven't sat down and watched it yet. Oh, my. I need to get that, like, tomorrow. Okay. <laughs> Those are my honorable mentions. Keith, do you have some that I know made yeah, your I initial do. list? I, I, I'll try to keep it to a reasonable number because, damn, once you start opening the door, it's like, there's so many. Right. But a few that I would mention just um, – one for me, and we, uh, you know, it may be too well known to fit in this, but Scorsese's first feature, Who's That Knocking at My Door? Mm-hmm. I think is a remarkable first film. I, I think to, in many ways it's, it's, it's as good as, as mean streets, which is the film that really put him on the map a couple of years later. Um, it, it, it's stylistically gorgeous. It's shot in this beautiful black and white. There's like one shot alone that goes on for like 12 minutes in a single shot, uh, and does so very effectively. 
there's a sequence in the middle of it that is on a cinema making level. I, it, it was completely forced into the film. Basically, the financier said, you have to put in a sex scene. Um, so what did Martin Scorsese do when somebody said, you have to put in a sex scene? He shot this completely <laughs> surreal, fascinating rock video of a scene to, to the doors, the end. Yes. Before, before Francis Coppola used it in, in uh, many years before Coppola used it in, in Apocalypse Now. And that sequence alone is worth the price of admission because it's erotic and disturbing and surreal and what is this? But it's also just a, who's that knocking? It's just a good movie. I mean, it's a, a character study. And in some ways, yes, it's very dated because it's about a culture that where, you know, this, the young female lead has been raped. And yet that makes her sort of like like worthless to, to the men of that time and that and that culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, you know, the Harvey Keitel plays this guy who he kind of is in love with her. But because she's no longer a virgin, even though she was raped, he's like, well, I don't know how I feel about you, which is horrifying. But really is different specific in the way women are objectified, but not necessarily different from the theme of women being objectified that you could say is the Me Too movement right now. Um, and, and it's just the acting is really good. It's powerful. It looks amazing. It was made for nothing. So that's a film that, you know, I, I know Scorsese fans will know it, but I feel like I'm still surprised how many people even who say they're Scorsese fans have never seen it. And it is findable. So that's one that I would I would definitely recommend. Um, another one that I would say is worth tracking down, you can sort of find it online, is a very early Altman film called Nightmare in Chicago. Um, yeah, I need which, to see that, the Chicago connection again. It's very cool. It, it, it's, it's not a great movie, but it's a very, very good movie. It's about a serial killer. Mm. It's just so uncharacteristic of Altman. It's so interesting to see what he was doing early on. It was actually made for television as a made-for-TV movie, and then I, I guess I gather it was then released theatrically in a limited way after that. Uh, the acting is really good. The suspense is really good. And for the time, it was a surprisingly complicated uh, a portrait of a, of, a, of a serial killer. You know, it was not, again, just the killer, you know, evil cartoon killer from hell. Uh, I mean, you don't like the guy. He's horrible, but but – you actually see him on a, as a human being, an awful human being, but a human being. Uh, and it's just a very effective film made for nothing. Uh, and, and just if you're interested in Altman's work, very worth seeking out. Um, I'll, I'll throw a couple more in. Uh, another uh, Bunuel film that's less known, and I have not re-seen it myself in a while, but I love, is Simon of the Desert, which is often people forget about it because it's like a 45-minute short. Right. Um, but it's spectacular looking. It's spectacular in its ideas. It's basically a Christ figure in the desert, sort of surrounded by these various figures that are all related to Bible figures, but put through Bunuel's odd sense of humor and surrealism. Uh, but is one of the more effective films on religion that I can remember seeing. Uh, it's sort of, you know, if, if, you, if you made Last Temptations of Christ on acid, you might <laughs> do something like this. Um, but it often gets overlooked in his filmography because it's more of a short, but it's a long short. And it, it's, it's, and I think Criterion put it out at least on DVD at one point. And it's a really just, if you like Bunuel, it's one of those, I like Bunuel and I've never seen movies that you really should see. Um, and, and I'll throw one other one in there, um, which is, uh, this, uh, there's, a, there's a French film that got very little attention in the States, but is wonderful called, uh, the shameless old lady. Um, uh, the, I forget what the La Dame something is the, the French title and it's by Rene Claire, I think 
from 1966. I'm trying, I'm going off of memory here, but it's basically an adaptation of a Brecht film about this, you know, sweet little old lady and, you know, her husband dies. And rather than being this sad movie about how she like lives alone and she suddenly comes to life. Um, and age, whatever. I mean, she looks like the actress certainly looks like she's well into her late seventies, you know, suddenly is hanging out with a prostitute and going to bars and having this very alive life that she'd never been able to have while she was busy fulfilling her role as a wife and mother and grandmother. And it's very funny and it's very sweet, very humanistic. Uh, you know, it manages to be a, a real piece of social critique at the same time that it's just completely enjoyable and completely sweet and funny and odd. Uh, and the lead woman in it, who I think, you know, had never done another film before or since she was like, it was great. I mean, so, and that's another one that, you know, you have to kind of look around to find it. I don't know if there's even a, <coughs> a U.S. Uh, DVD release. There is a, there is a, a VHS that was made forever ago. You know, you track down. Uh, but again, I think, it, you know, you can sometimes find it on, you know, YouTube or whatever. And, and, and they have t- subtitles with it. And it's, it's just really worth seeing it. It's, it's that rare kind of, the French are good at that. There's very, very these humanistic movies that are both really funny, but have a lot more going on at the same time. Well, that's great. So I, would say, I would say that those are all, you know, those would be, I guess my, 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 my few that I throw in, but a lot more we could talk about. Oh, certainly. Oh, cer- and there was, the, and there was one that I did watch that I just felt really torn about talking about. <laughs> and I think you yes. know which one I'm talking about. Yes. Sundays, uh, and, Sundays and Sabelle. Sabelle. Yeah. Again, it really, it's, it's gorgeously shot. There's amazing moments in it. It's just, it was really hard to watch. <laughs> yeah. For well, obvious reasons. Yes. It, it, it's, it's definitely disturbing. Although mm-hmm. that's kind of why I really like it too. Um, because it tells of a sort of romance and, you know, there are kind of, uh, intimate, I mean, it's not, it's about a romance between a, a young girl. I mean, she's like 11 or something in the movie. And there's a, 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 uh, veteran a French veteran of the, of the French Indochina war comes back home and is clearly emotionally screwed up and, and, PTSD, you know, back, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Major PTSD back before it was called PTSD. Um, and it's this friendship that they have that he develops with this girl, but it's a romance and there's no specific intimation that anything sexual ever happens between them, but there is a sexual energy between them. And it's really weird because she's this little girl and he clearly is damaged in a way where he sees her with love and love that isn't appropriate necessarily to an 11 year old girl yet because nothing actually happens in the film that we're aware of at least. I feel like it's it's not it doesn't for me it doesn't cross the line because what it's really about his his need for love and connection and her need for love and connection they're both you know she comes from this not good family situation and so it's kind of like this thing of like in a world of pain is any love a good love uh, obviously if it crossed into actual sexual activity you go no that's really not okay but this kind of this kind of sweetly platonic but deeply romantic relationship for me is a fascinating line to be, to be walking um, because it's sort of wrong and creepy. And it's sort of like, you go, Oh my God, I just want you two to be happy. And like, if that means like pretending they're in love with each other and just forgetting the world exists, like I want that for both of them. And 
So it to me, the, the very fact that it's so confusing to watch makes it a really interesting movie. Yeah, confusing and complex and <laughs> challenging in all the ways that, yes, great films can do. It, you know, and again, it was one of those kind of, we talked about a lot, uh, another film about loneliness and, and a desperate need to connect in some way. It's just also challenging in, in knowing whether or not this is acceptable. <laughs> and, and the people in the movie, like the, those that he's associated with do question that too. Oh yeah, no. It it's clear that the film is is saying this it's is very dangerous yeah. ground. Yeah. Um, because should it turn into a literal sexual relationship, it obviously would be you know completely inappropriate and completely damaging to this sweet little girl. But because it sort of stays on the side of it's about emotion, not physicalization of the love, I feel like. I don't know. I can emotionally go there and go, yeah, it's disturbing and it's a question, but is, would it really be better for him to kill himself and her to feel completely alone in the world than have this sort of inappropriate but not acted out inappropriate relationship? And, you know, that's, to me, a really valid question. And I think it's one of those movies, on a first viewing, you're bound to wrestle with it on some level, I would think. And maybe if I go back in, you know, another few years or so, knowing what I'm in for, I will be a little bit more open towards this scenario. It wasn't like I, you know, shunned it and just went, ugh, this is too gross, I can't watch this. It wasn't that. It was just, yeah, again, feeling a lot of different things (laughs) while watching it. Yeah, and and that's, to me, why I really like it. Yeah. That's why I'm really a big fan of it, because I... I enjoy feeling those com- complicated, confused feelings. I enjoy, and I think you do too, with some of the films you've talked about. I, I, I actually find that rewarding to go, I don't know how I feel about this. I have to think about it. I have to kind of look at it from different lenses. And I, I think that's one of the things film does wonderfully. And I think they can be very valuable at making us uh, really question, well, what, where are my boundary lines? Where, where, what is appropriate? What isn't appropriate? You know, how do we judge other people and what their emotional needs are? I think those are great things for films to examine. I agree completely. No, for sure. And there's where you look back and go, yeah, you look at some of the films that in the seventies were like considered okay. There's like the, 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 you know, murmur of the heart where a kid sleeps with his mother and there's, you know, uh, yeah, the, uh, the, the the Blier film the Pierre or whatever where again the fourteen year old thirteen year old girl seduces her stepfather and I kind of go like, yeah that's sort of of a moment and it really does seem deeply creepy now and not okay but this film doesn't fall into that realm for me I mean there definitely were films during the height of the really sexual revolution there should be no boundaries that you go yeah that's not all right this movie for me doesn't fall into that it kind of goes into a much more rich and complicated emotional zone. Yeah. And at the same time, I, I struggle with, you know, actively recommending it just because it is a sensitive time where we're sort of examining grooming in yeah. some capacity where we're thinking a little bit more deeply about the kind of relationships that men can have that are inappropriate clearly when they lead to something sexual. And in this case it doesn't. So I can see 
you know, being more open towards this as a positive experience. I think it's just, yeah, it's hard. It's hard. It's really hard in some cases where there are some topics where I'm going like, yeah, this, this is really crossing a line in a way for me possibly, but at the same time, there's a lot of value to be had in having those complex feelings watching a film. Sure. And it's also very personal. I mean, obviously, I could, I mean, in a way, I hope this serves as nothing else as a trigger warning for people because there right, are people right. that, like, yeah, there are people who've had experiences in their past where it's like, you wouldn't want to see this movie because you might not have had this experience, but it may trigger enough of a feeling or memory that they would be very disturbing to you. Um, so I definitely think being aware of it and being alerted to it but i also think you know if you go in knowing that this does not lead to where you get afraid it might lead to you know there's not some suddenly some scene with the two of them in bed you know if you know that you know you may then be able to watch it with a sense of okay this isn't that movie this is this is really a movie about well what is love and what's acceptable and i think that's a useful thing but but it definitely i could see it being very personal i could see Somebody being completely turned off. I mean, when you when you expressed, it's funny because it didn't really bother me at all when I saw it. Maybe because I, I think I'd read reviews about it, so I kind of knew what the boundary lines were. So I watched it and just really was very moved by it. But when you described your reaction, I can't say that I was like, "Oh, that's crazy." I was like, "Oh, yeah, okay, I can see that." Yeah, and at the same time, uh, I had a very mixed reaction to Todd Salons' happiness when I first saw it. That's for sure. Sure. Um, and that was one of the first times I remember feeling that challenged in like, oh, I'm supposed to have empathy for a pedophile in this movie, <laughs> you know? And like, but I really feel like with that movie, that was the point was like challenging you to go, yep. what do you think about this? And I, and I do think that that's, I almost feel like, like that that's always okay for a, a piece of art to ask. Mm-hmm. I think if the art, if, if the art says, and I'm telling you it's okay, that to me crosses a whole different set of lines, but I didn't think for a second, like when I, at least when I remember of happiness and again, I haven't seen it since it was first released, but I never felt like we were supposed to feel approving of that character or what he did. Exactly. Just that he was still a human being even then. And that goes back to a movie like Emma. I mean, sure, you know, sure. when, when, when Peter Laurie is standing and saying, I can't help myself, I can't help myself. And the world was shocked because, Oh my God, this is a child murderer. And theoretically, imply child sexual molester as well. And yet you're going, I feel bad for him. I shouldn't be feeling that. I think that's actually a really interesting thing that art does sometimes is make you go, here's somebody you should hate. I mean, it can be a portrait of Adolf Hitler. It can be what, and then make you go. And now I'm going to make you see that they're still a human being and you're going to have to deal with what that leaves you with. Um, and I actually think that's a valid, if disturbing and hard thing for art to do. Oh, that's such a great point. Yeah. And I'm, I obviously I appreciate that experience clearly with some of the choices we've made for this episode. And again, I'm very grateful and I am so excited to go back yet again in a year with you. Yes. To the 1950s. Does anything like, I mean, obviously we didn't prepare anything in advance. Does any titles off the top of your head, for a possibility for the well, 1950s? I mean, again, it's all going to be with the dividing line of how well-known is well-known. That's true. Immediately comes to mind is In a Lonely Place. Yep. Um, which is a very, very favorite film, and I surpri- <laughs> I'm surprised at how many people seem to not know it. It's funny you mentioned that 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 film because that <laughs> the director's other work came to mind, which would be Bigger Than Life. Ah, uh, yes. Oh. That pro- the problem is we could just do a whole Nick Ray show, really. It's... It, 
Oh yeah, and I have. <laughs> I love Nicholas Ray. He's one of yes, my favorites. So we'll definitely touch upon uh, those titles, and we'll come up with a list like we always do later in the yeah. year. Well, that's always half the fun. You know, is 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 I wish we could let the audience in on that, but you and I going back and forth, going, "What about this? What about that?" I always love that part of it too. Yeah, no, for sure. And and hearing and seeing some of your recommendations, that I will eventually catch up with if I do within the year. I'll, I'll shoot you a message, of course, and be like, "Hey, I'm so glad I watched this one too." That's, oh yeah, well, I, you know, yeah, I like it when it goes both ways. Please send you know send ideas because I'm always looking to see something I haven't. Oh, thank you so much. You always bring so much to the show, and I'm so grateful on so many levels. It really means a lot to me. Uh, I mean, geez, I I find your insights so exciting to listen to that if you do find the time in your busy schedule, you probably should just start your own movie podcast, to be honest. <laughs> well, but I kind of like doing them with friends. You know, I mean, sure. there's, there's a few of these that I do with people I really like and admire, and I find that much more fun. You know, uh, the sharing of stuff, I really, you know... I really enjoy that. And so I like, and I like coming into your world. I mean, that's, that's really interesting to me. Yes. And it, and it always is a joy for me as well. I'm sure you're, you're, uh, busy with your career. Is there anything in the works or anything that folks can look forward to? Possibly? Not a second, because really I got really waylaid and I was comfortable with it by, by COVID, sure. uh, you know, being a little older and having asthma and other things, I, I did not feel comfortable going back on a set for a while because sets are like if you could design a place that would be a really bad like like how do you come up with something that's a likely place to get COVID? Well, put a whole bunch of people who've probably traveled there from all over the world, jam them in, together in a small interior space, uh, have them work very intimately with some people not being able to wear masks because they're actors. Uh, it just I was frankly chicken. I just felt like it seems really dangerous to me. Now, with as as vaccinations and everything change, you know, now I'm feeling quite differently about it, and I'm sure I will go back now. But there was a good 18 months where I was like, "No, nah, I'm not doing that." You know, I, I it's it's not worth dying over an episode of a TV show, or you know, um, I think if somebody said, "Here, we'll give you millions of dollars to make the film, or even a million dollars to make someone of your own babies," one of my projects that I really wanted to do, that would have been different. Um, but we'll see. I mean, I have things in the works, well, but they're always in the works. The independent film thing, you know, it's like you getting, as I often say, getting from nowhere to very close is easy and getting from very close to here's an actual check, go make the actual movie is the impossible part. Sure. So the project that I don't want to go into too much detail about in terms of names, but I'd be on as a producer, not as a director. And my wife and I have been working on it for 15 years. Oh, wow. And did get a humongous star like you know a plus list star to say they would do it mm. for not much money but it's still hard oh. it's amazing it's like we kind of went oh this is going to be really easy now uh and instead we're still getting a well we love them and we love this piece of writing but it's not very commercial and it's not going to make be easy to make money on it and it's like oh my god um so we'll see I but know. this is a very particularly tough time i think the I don't know how much your listeners are interested in the business side of the business, but but uh, the dying of the old models of what you do with a movie in terms of the theater and when, what, theaters and what happened with COVID and all that and the struggles that places like Netflix have gone through where suddenly their model where everything was super profitable but become less so. and um, There's not a clean model of how you make a grown-up serious movie right now yeah, um, and guarantee a return. 
So most of them that are getting made are because individual investors are stepping up and taking a chance on something. And that's a tough you know, thing to chase because you've got to find just the right person at just the right moment. So you know, right now there's a lot less production coming out of the art film world. It's happening. But usually there's either a genre element that's strong or uh, you know, some reason that it's like, oh, we know we can pre-sell this you know, just based on the log line or something. So it is a particularly difficult time. Now that will continue to evolve, but, but it, it, it's a weird moment for the kinds of films that I'm drawn to. Well, as a lifelong fan, I just want more work. <laughs> want- well, thank you. Well, I've I, I far from given up. I mean, of I course. did, like I say, there was, a, there was a year and a half sort of sabbatical in there. But, you know, now I'm back to it. There's a project that I've wanted to direct for many, many years that I'm currently examining to see if I could drop a zero off of the budget. Uh, you know, I've, I've had some friends and acquaintances make movies for ridiculously low sums. So I'm trying to look at what does that really mean? What does it mean to make a movie for $200,000 instead of $2 million? What limitations would I face? What freedoms would I gain? And so that's that's the other thing I'm really focused on is taking something I wanted to do since 2001 when I first got uh, the rights to the book oh. and saying, can I make this that small and still make the movie that I want to make? So that's that's part of the work that's going on right now. Yeah, I, I know it's not easy. You know, I mean, uh, another one of my favorite filmmakers, Sarah Polly. Huh. She's oh. took took her ten years to 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 make her new movie, and it's coming out later this year. I believe it's a, a book adaptation called uh, "Women Talking" with a dream cast, if there ever was one. Good lord! I know uh, one of my new favorites, Jesse Buckley, is among them. So <laughs> there's no, I, I I love her, and I yeah. yes, I'm excited to see anything she does. Yeah, and definitely um, check out her book that she just recently put out too. It's 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 something, especially. Uh, what she brings up regarding Terry Gilliam. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. Again, a lot of it's pretty heavy, but yeah, she's just always been one of those. I mean, before, even before she directed, I was always drawn to her as an actress. And now, you know, every film she's made, I think is incredibly strong. And now she's finally a new one. So I'm just hoping the same for you in the future. (laughs) Well, I I got to know Sarah just a little bit when I was auditioning, for uh, Waking the Dead, because she kept, you know, I kept bringing her back to the role that Jennifer Connelly played. Mm. They were sort of ended up being kind of my two last choices, and she just was too young, sure. you know. I mean, just putting her next to Billy, she just looked like a kid. But her work was so phenomenal, and her intelligence and what she brought to it as an actress was so amazing that I was immediately, you know, and then as a person, when you didn't talk to her, you know, she was so smart, and so it's been really fun watching her you know, blossom into this amazing filmmaker. And uh, I, I, I know she's one of those people I'm always rooting for. Yeah. Same here. And I'll always be rooting for you as well, sir. Thank you, my friend. Yeah. I can't thank you enough for another enlightening and passionate conversation. Really. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk great cinema and let's do it again in a year when we go back to the 1950s. Absolutely. Awesome, man. Well, take care and all the best to you and your family. All right. You too, my friend. Okay. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Bye.